The late spiritual and self-help author Wayne Dyer called his book Power vs. Force perhaps the most important and significant book I've read in the past 10 years. The late modern saint, Mother Teresa, said his work was packed with advice in how to stay in good physical, mental, and spiritual shape. For years, he presented lectures in his hometown of Sedona, Arizona, that were sold out months in advance, and his numerous audio programs have been favorites of Nightingale Conan customers for over 10 years. His name is Dr. David Hawkins. Affectionately called Doc by those who loved him and knew him best, Sir David Ramon Hawkins, MD, PhD, died peacefully at his home in Sedona, Arizona on September 19, 2012, at the age of 85. Yet his profound message of spiritual truth, enlightenment, and growth lives on in this incredible new audio collection, the ultimate David Hawkins Library. Here you have access to the most classic audio segments David ever recorded at Nightingale Conant. In the following 10 volumes, we've selected several classic audio segments taken from the five audio programs that David recorded for Nightingale Conant, and we've organized them around several of David's most important spiritual themes. The result is an unforgettable and indeed life-changing listening experience. A nationally renowned psychiatrist, physician, researcher, spiritual teacher, and lecturer, Dr. Hawkins was the founding director of the Institute for Spiritual Research, Incorporated, and the founder of the Path of Devotional Non-Duality. He lectured widely at such places as Westminster Abbey, Oxford Forum, the University of Notre Dame, the University of Michigan, and Harvard University. In addition, he was an advisor to Catholic, Protestant, and Buddhist monasteries. He has conferred with foreign governments on international diplomacy and has been instrumental in resolving long-standing conflicts that were major threats to world peace. He is featured in recent documentary films, magazines, and radio interviews, such as Oprah Radio and the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for his work in the areas of health, healing, recovery, spirituality and modern life, consciousness research, and meditation. As you'll learn in the recordings that follow, a trademark of Dr. Hawkins' research is his pioneering, internationally known and applied Map of Consciousness. Originally presented in the ever-popular book Power vs. Force, as well as his previous Nightingale Conant programs. We have provided a copy of this Map of Consciousness with this program so you can easily refer to it as you listen to David's messages. The map of consciousness incorporates findings from quantum physics and nonlinear dynamics, thereby confirming the classical stages of spiritual evolution found in the world's sacred literature as actual attractor fields. These spiritual levels have been delineated by saints, sages, and mystics, yet there had never been a scientific framework by which to understand the inner terrain. The map of consciousness is clinically sophisticated in its depiction of each level's emotional tone, view of God, and view of life. For example, fear views God as punitive, whereas love views God as loving. The map of consciousness illumines heretofore unknown aspects of consciousness. 
With each progressive rise in the level of consciousness, the frequency or vibration of energy increases. Thus, higher consciousness radiates a beneficial and healing effect on the world, verifiable in the human muscle response, which stays strong in the presence of love and truth. In contrast, non-true or negative energy fields, which calibrate below the level of integrity, induce a weak muscle response. This stunning discovery of the difference between power and force has influenced numerous fields of human endeavor, business, advertising, education, psychology, medicine, law, and international relations. You'll learn more about the specifics about the calibration process and the map of consciousness in volume two of this library. However, David will refer to calibration levels, such as a calibration level of 190 or a calibration level of 210 throughout all of the volumes that follow, so you'll want to have the map handy as you listen. Finally, we are proud to present a bonus volume for your listening pleasure, the most valuable qualities for a spiritual seeker. This is a portion of a lecture that David did almost a year after our last recording with him, and one of the last lectures he delivered during his earthly journey. Truly, what you have here is the ultimate David Hawkins Library, a collection of profound ideas from one of the great spiritual thinkers of our generation. So let's begin this journey with Volume 1. The vast majority of self-help and success-oriented teachers encourage people to follow outward, assertive, ego-oriented methods to achieve long-lasting wealth and happiness. But having traveled that path himself early in his life, David knew that the ego path was ultimately a dead end. In the classic selections that follow in this first volume, David will encourage you to step off the ego path onto a more rewarding, fulfilling, and service-oriented enlightenment path. And as David indicates in this first segment of our library, the path you will travel begins with your personal choice. Everybody's aware when they have a choice between the high road and the low road. That's common to almost everyone. And you know that you could get a better grade by cheating or an honest grade by not cheating. So you have to make those decisions over and over. To, to me, the dilemma of the human existence is that you have to choose every second. Every second of every minute, you realize that your mind is constantly making choices. The challenge of human existence is phenomenal when you look at it. See, because you're used to it, you don't realize it. Every single moment as I speak, the mind is choosing what word, how to enunciate that word, how to phrase that word, how to contextualize it, whether to amplify it, whether to support it, whether to explain it, whether to just let the listener worry about it. See? So every single word I'm choosing amongst probably 50 different possible options. I could suddenly become comical and break the seriousness of it, you know what I'm saying? And some people that would help them and other people that would say, oh, I can't believe what he's saying. He just, you know, gets lighthearted about things. <laughs> yeah, because they don't see the spiritual value of humor, you see. 
So the human at every instant, every fractional instant, is choosing between this thought and that thought, between this option and that option. Shall I shift in my chair? I just had to decide that as I'm talking. Shall I shift in the chair or is it going to make a rattling noise that will get picked up by the microphone, you see? And of course, I'm not telling you that, but while I'm speaking to you, there's probably half a dozen conscious options, or there's probably dozens of unconscious options, ways that we could go, you know, should by a positive response encourage them to go in that direction, the questioner. Or should I sound bored with it and discourage him from following that track? You see anything? So we're always trying to influence and we're always making choices. So I always feel sorry for the human condition is that you can never be content because the minute you're content, you're even wondering if you should be content. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Am I falling back on the oars? You know? <laughs> so <laughs> there's very little rest, very little rest for the human because his mind is constantly presenting an endless array of options. So people don't say they don't believe in karma. Well, you don't have to use that word. What you can see is that your mind is endlessly, constantly confronted with choosing options. And your whole life is going to change depending on what option you pick. It's like a giant map, electronic map. And if you choose this direction, you're going to end up hundreds of miles from if you'd chosen that direction. So making choices is the major human occupation. Nobody ever mentions it. The major human preoccupation, and it outclipses all others, is the constant making of choices. Should I look in that direction or not look in that direction? Should I try to get this job not? Should I say this, say that? Should I wear this, should I say that? Should I walk on the other side of the sidewalk or this side of the sidewalk? Should I call so-and-so, you know? Should I let this bill wait another two weeks, you know? What you see is a projection of your own consciousness. What you project out into the world, whether you see this world as sad, happy, ludicrous, beneficial, beautiful, divine, frustrating, corrupt, evil, or an infinite good. If man is to progress, to realize the ultimate divinity, which is the core of his existence, then it would require progressively growing into that dimension of awareness. So the karmic benefit of human lifetime, as the Buddha said, would be self-rewarding. Yeah? Fortunate it is to be born a human. Even more fortunate it is to have heard of enlightenment. And rarer still is it to be born, to have heard of enlightenment and then proceed to pursue it. And I might add, rarer than that is to achieve it because it requires tenacity. And the roadway to enlightenment takes you through very difficult, like a walk through a swamp. It takes you through difficult terrain. So the difference between force and power is force is linear. 
force is demarcated. You see, it has a form, like a molecule or something, see? It may have ears on it, eyes, <laughs> feet, anything. <laughs> it has structure, it has form. Therefore, it's limited. That which has form is obviously limited. It's limited by form. That which is formless is unlimited. Eventually, we can solve every riddle that's ever plagued mankind with this little simple diagram. By the end of the day, we'll solve them all. Why not? <laughs> we got an hour and a half. <laughs> now, we'll have the key to it. We'll have the E equals MC squared to it. This is force limited to form. This is power, which is non-dual, which is infinite. Power has no limitation. There's no limit to power. In fact, the, more, the greater the demand you put on it, the greater it swells and it meets the need. Force, on the other hand, is exhausted. Force goes from here to there. It extends its own energy. You have to constantly stoke force with more and more energy. Money, bodies of soldiers, bodies of believers, their gold, their lives, their sweat. You have to pull it out because it takes, finally the Roman Empire, which is the greatest empire the world's ever seen, after a thousand years petered out. <laughs> ran out of gold, <laughs> bodies of women, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just ran out and it petered out and dissolved into the countryside and the soldiers all married the local women and said the heck with it. <laughs> petered out, greatest empire the world's ever seen. So force is limited, power on the other hand is unlimited. When you define what is truth, this is content and this is context. It's impossible to define truth without defining the context. And that is the reason the great books of the Western world and all the greatest philosophers that have ever lived have never solved the problems of epistemology because they never got that subtly. That you move from the objective to the subjective. The objective will take you up to the hmm, 499 and from there you move into the subjective. The presence of God is not something one can experience through thought, but experientially. It is subjective. All right. The levels of human consciousness are pretty much what they have been described throughout the ages, from hatred uh, all the way up to love, and then in the levels of enlightenment. It's roughly comparable to the chakra system also, in that hatred, uh, is the spleen uh, down at the bottom we have people coming out of hatred kill all americans and all that kind of thing so hatred is uh, like coming out of 70. Uh, there are lots of human beings walking around the world and running countries to calibrate at 70. in fact that's about the same as the komodo dragon hmm. the energy of the komodo dragon we have permission to do that is over 40. 45, 55, 60, 60. The level of several of the world's recent dictators that I'm holding in mind is over 45. 
more vicious than a Komodo dragon in human form. So Christ said, how do you tell the wolf in sheep's clothing? Forget about wolves, there are pansies out there. I can handle a wolf anytime. Komodo dragon, you're getting a little serious. <laughs> Some of the world's recent dictators, now you're getting really serious. More vicious than a Komodo dragon. And the people vote for them. They follow them. They follow them to their death. Entities that calibrate less than a Komodo dragon. Komodo dragon kills out of innocence. It knows that if it slathers and bites you, its bite is so venomous, he just sits back and waits a couple days and you die of bacterial infection and then he eats you. That's not really vicious intention. So there's not really a viciousness of intention. He just wants to eat you. He's hungry. Can't blame a Komodo dragon for being hungry, right? <laughs> All right. How do you tell, then, the wolf in sheep's clothing? So we were warned, and we were told, by their fruits you shall, they shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. But by the time you had a chance to check out their fruits and have a congressional investigation, and investigators go there, <laughs> a great deal of time has passed, and thousands more citizens have died and they've been executed. How can you find out the truth of them right off the bat? Well, we just did this morning. So when I saw the kinesiologic test, I saw what you're seeing is a reaction of the field, an impersonal field. And what it is, is that consciousness itself recognizes the presence of truth. At first I thought it was truth versus falsehood. I thought it knows the true from the false. No, it doesn't know the true from the false. It only knows the true from the not true. Oh, that's quite a difference. It knows what's true and fails to recognize what is not true. Hmm. You see how that gets us out of polarity. You see how that, there's a subtlety to this. It gets you out of the spiritual guilt of the polarity of the opposites, where you like this and hate that and you feel guilty because you're supposed to be spiritual and not anything. See, you can, there's chocolate and vanilla. You can like chocolate without hating vanilla. Got it? You don't have to hate vanilla. You can just choose chocolate. You can be right-wing and not hate the liberals, because they're all vanilla. You can be a vanilla liberal, you don't have to hate all the conservatives because they're chocolates. You just like, you like vanilla. I don't know how you digest that chocolate, but that's your problem, you know? <laughs> Chocolate guy says, vanilla is for wimpies. I mean, I don't know if you like vanilla, you like vanilla, but us guys, we like chocolate. You know? <laughs> so you can champion your cause, you can tell we're the greatest, and tattoo yourself, make parades, but you don't have to get into hate. The purpose of our discussion, of course, is to potentiate the evolution of consciousness. And the only purpose of the books or the lectures that I've given is to support the progression of that consciousness within the individual who is elected to pursue a higher level of consciousness. So people think they're in the ordinary world of causality. They think that what they are is the product of their past. No, the reality is 
that it's the potentiality of what you have chosen to become that is pulling you into the present. So anybody listening to a program like this, it's not because of what you've been in the past that's pushing you up to this point. On the contrary, it's because you elected to be that which is beyond this point that is pulling you through this point. <laughs> it's because you have chosen already by spiritual intention. So. People say, what's karma about? Well, karma is just the automatic energy consequent of spiritual intention and spiritual decision. Well, every decision you make then affects your calibrated level of consciousness, which is a shorthand way of saying your karma. It starts first as curiosity, perhaps, or hearsay. Next thing you know, they find themselves automatically drawn into spiritual growth and spiritual concepts and the desire to understand them and to benefit from them. And they begin to realize that as they grow, they're benefiting the world. That what you're doing is uh, affecting everyone. <laughs> the whole world benefits from them. And we can prove that also with quantum mechanics, you know, the Heisenberg principle. The collapse of the wave function then begins to affect the whole field of consciousness. So. Every individual who commits himself to spiritual work is benefiting all of mankind. This is an automatic consequence of his choices and decisions because he's collapsing the potential into the actual, which is affecting the collective consciousness of all of mankind. We found it quite interesting when we were calibrating levels of consciousness, we asked, what is the level of consciousness of mankind? Well, that led to a rather major discovery also that the consciousness of mankind throughout the ages has been constantly, slowly, very slowly progressing. At the time of the birth of Buddha, the consciousness level of mankind was 90. At the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, the consciousness level of mankind was 100. Then down through the ages that slowly evolved and through the 1200s, 1400s, 1700s, it stayed at 190. It stayed at 190 century after century, it didn't move. Then suddenly in the late 1980s, at about the time of the harmonic convergence, not caused by it, but at the time of it, at the time of the collapse of monolithic communism, many other things, approximately at the same time in the late 1980s, the consciousness level of mankind jumped from 190 to 207. Because 200 is the level of truth, 200 is the level of integrity, it is probably the most significant event, as I say, in the history of humankind. Unnoticed, the shift of consciousness went from 190 to 207. That completely changes <laughs> the field in which all of mankind now lives. So, how does it change it? Well, at 190, the destruction of mankind was inevitable. So the destruction of mankind was quite likely. You know, the great mega bomb in case Russia lost the war was gonna destroy all of mankind was a considerable likelihood. At 207 now, there's a whole new paradigm of reality. In the world in which I grew up in the 1930s, etc., on through that century, the goal of life was success. You were supposed to make money, be successful, go to college, get a name for yourself, etc. So the great goal of society was success. Now, at 207, we see a whole shift of paradigm. Now, people are not interested in your success. I mean, you can buy some stock and be a millionaire tomorrow, and so what? No, now what we're looking at is integrity. 
So all the great corporations whose heads have rolled have been so because of lack of integrity. We see Martha Stewart being run through the grinder there in public, and it's integrity. We see politicians being called to task for integrity. No, success and monetary value and having a big car and all the stuff that used to make people happy in the 50s no longer suffices. Now people are looking, what is the integrity of this company? What is the integrity of this politician? We're looking at how truthful are they? How can they back up their statements? So integrity is the new signal of social value. We want to invest in people and politicians and teachers who have proven integrity. Well, how can you prove it? Well, one way you can prove it is, frankly, is simply by calibrating the level, <laughs> level of it. <laughs> That which is integrous then has, uh, why is it of value? Because integrity has power. Lack of integrity can have force, a monetary force for a moment, but it collapses. And so you can't base your life on success. And therefore the new paradigm of value is integrity. And it's by integrity now that everyone is going to be measured. You know? How integrous a teacher are you? How integrous is a spiritual teacher? How integrous is a university? And when you calibrate all these things, you see where integrity is sold out. We've calibrated many, many things. So you can see where any compromise in integrity has, uh, it shows up in the, you know, on the dotted line. So because you can now measure it and calibrate truth from falsehood, I think we will have a new yardstick by which man will grow faster than before. We saw for centuries it stayed at 190, no movement. From a historical viewpoint, what people would say great events happened. Well, great events from a perceptual viewpoint, but not from a spiritual viewpoint. So man is now in a new dimension, and 207 is critical because it only takes one feather to tip the balance from negative to positive. So. Every spiritual decision we make then tips the scale to the positive side and that totally changes the destiny of our life. If you're out at sea, you know, a, a change of one degree in the compass may not seem like much, but after a couple days of sailing, you'll end up on a different continent. So one degree makes quite a bit of difference. So freedom of choice then, spiritual choice, is what we're confronted with instant by instant. So instant by instant, we're constantly saying yes or no to choices, and those choices then determine our spiritual level and our calibrated level of consciousness and our karmic destiny. This led to my eventually becoming a spiritual teacher, right, because that's what you call me in which I wanted to share my uh, own uh, subjective state and uh, what I've discovered and things that have never been really said before. What I teach now I call devotional non-duality. Devotional. Devotional because one is in love with the truth, one is in love with the pathway to God through truth, in non-duality, meaning that to reach a state of enlightenment, one has to transcend the ego. And the ego is dualistic in nature. Human thinking is dualistic in nature. There's an either-or, a this-or-that. 
So the spiritual student is usually confronted, it starts first with confronting the ego and what has traditionally been called sin and given all kinds of bad names. So the first thing I want a student to understand is the nature of the ego and to become friendly with it. And where does the ego come from? So you have to get away from demonizing it. You can't see it as an enemy. The ego is nothing but the animal nature. When you look at the animal kingdom, all you see is what's called the human ego. When we see it in an animal, we just say it's animal nature. But when we see it in a human, we say, oh, oh, isn't that awful? Well, no, it's not awful. The animal brain is still active in the back of the human brain. So when we became humans, so when we evolved, when consciousness evolved over great eons of time, up through the animal world, you see, very primitive life form, you see, the beginning of that which is rapacious, it lives by the death of others, the reptilian world. Then you see the emergence of the mammalian, and for the first time you see the emergence of love. Well, love doesn't emerge on this planet for millions and billions and millions of years. Not till the, you see the mammalian. Well, when you see the, actually when you see the bird, you see the mother bird caring for the eggs and the, and the baby birds. But it's really the mammalian that you begin to see. So you don't see love until you see really the emergence of the maternal. So love doesn't appear until you see the mother's concern for the child, the infant, the fledgling, the paternal love. The mother has to protect the cubs from the male lion, so you don't see it arising primarily early in the evolution of the animal world. And so you see the love beginning to emerge as the expression of the maternal. And then you begin to see love blossom over the ages. And you know, romantic love, which we take for granted in today's world, is a rather recent occurrence. People didn't get married for romantic love. They got married because the family arranged it, or the kings and queens of England, for all their power, you know, weren't free to choose love. They figured marriage is one thing, love is another. So romantic love, as we see it, in, is a rather uh, very recent and modern thing, you know? So anyway, when people go into spiritual work, they are always concerned about overcoming the ego. So first we say, recontextualize it as the residual of the animal within us. The old animal brain is still present in the back of the human brain. And the prefrontal cortex is a rather recent emergence. If you calibrate the level of consciousness of hominids as they evolved over time, you see uh, Cro-Magnon, uh, you see uh, Neanderthal. Uh, Neanderthal calibrates around 75. Uh, really an animal level. Although it's able to speak and talk, it's still pretty much an animal. So it's only with the emergence of the forebrain and the prefrontal cortex, you begin to see ethics, uh, morality, uh, spiritual awareness as such. So what man then is trying to do is transcend domination by the animal instincts. If you take it out of the viewpoint of sin then, and begin to see it as animal. So what is an animal like? Well, you can see the human ego on display at any zoo. You go to the Monkey Island in the zoo, 
and you see territoriality. You see gangs, they hang together in groups and then fight over turf. So you see the turf wars, which is uh, every day's headlines in the Middle East or wherever on the planet. There's always a turf war going on. And then you see the exploitation and the subjugation of the weak. You see deception and lying and camouflage. And so all you see uh, in today's headlines is uh, Monkey Island with a human expression. <laughs> so spiritual work then is really overcoming selfishness, self-centeredness, and egocentricity in all of its various disguises. What are the various disguises? Well, the compulsion to have, to own, to be successful, to win, and all the things that we know as egocentricity. So how does one then begin to transcend that? People say, well, I'm interested in evolving spiritually. You know, what can I do from a practical viewpoint? Because all what you've just described can sound quite advanced and quite theoretical and quite imposing to somebody who's not familiar with the work. Actually, this work becomes rather easy. The more you read it, the more you arrive at the feeling that I knew this all, all along. And of course, you do know it all along. But how to transform this in everyday life? So people say, how can I grow spiritually? Do I have to go somewhere? Do I have to get a guru? Do I have to join a meditation group? Uh, do I have to recite mantras or what? No, you don't have to do that at all. It's so simple that it's overlooked all the time. It's a decision to be loving and kind towards all of life, including your own, at all times, no matter what. To be forgiving, to be gentle, to be that which is supportive of life. So that becomes not what you do, but what you are. You become that which supports life, supports all endeavors, it encourages those who need encouragement, and it becomes the energy of life itself. So it becomes almost like the manifestation of the Divine Mother, as well as the Divine Father. So it's the merging of the two, you see? That which is nurturing, at the same time that which is demanding of excellence. So the pathway of non-duality then is the devotion to spiritual principles. And as you become devoted to spiritual principles, you're brought up face to face with the mind's propensity for either or, good or evil, liberal or conservative. You know, you're confronted constantly with the so-called polarities. And to reach a very advanced state of consciousness, it is then necessary to transcend the so-called polarities of either orness. Okay, in the late 1980s, for reasons unknown, the consciousness level of mankind went up to 207, which is incredible. Now, it doesn't sound numerically like much, but you see, we crossed the critical line this is a year below the line, and this year above the line. And that's all the difference between life and death. So what went on at 190 was excusable, Enron included. 207, Enron's not acceptable anymore. You see how we've changed? So now, 
when I grew up, success, you're supposed to be successful. Get through college, make money, have a new car. Success was what it's all about. The world of the solar plexus. Jet, gain, bigger car, more titles. It's supposed to be a recent car. Yeah, who looks at a recent car? I drive, I drive a Cadillac. Hmm. <laughs> 84. <laughs> I was wanting to drive a Cadillac and own. <laughs> and I grew up to have an old Cadillac. That was the ultimate. And I said, I'm going to own them someday. And I do. <laughs> that was the world of gain, of success, uh, challenge, champion, win, win. The game of the solar plexus. The world I grew up in was the game of success. And therefore, business was one thing and church was another. Nobody mixed the two up. And in the book, I think I said, never trust a man in a suit and a tie because, you see, I don't wear a suit and tie, but the minute I do, watch out. Because <laughs> I'm going to look for a sharp deal, folks. <laughs> My head switches. See? Then this is one thing. Spiritual truth in church is another. You don't mix the two. The other unfortunate thing we found, we said, what's the average consciousness level of the uh, CEO level of the Fortune 500 companies that came out at 198? <laughs> Which means keep your eyes open, folks. Just thought I'd pass that inside tip out to you. <laughs> Underneath that sheep's clothing, you say, peeky boos. <laughs> Who that under there? <laughs> <laughs> I wondered why you had your hand in my pocket. Give me back my money. All right. So, but the interesting thing, you see, at 190 you can get away with that. At 207 you can't because it takes an energy field quite a while before it, you know, has a profound effect on the whole ecology of our population. At 207 it doesn't work anymore, and you see the giant corporations falling. I mean, every day there's a new giant corporation that's fallen by the wayside. Another corrupt regime is being singled out by the world for straighten up, shape up or ship out. <laughs> so corrupt dictatorships, which torture their populace and steal their wealth, you know, were quite common years ago. There were only a few forms of government and the cruel dictator was sort of classic. He still rules in parts of the world. So he can get away with it when you're below 190, but at 207, everybody begins to notice, remark about it, begin to put pressure on it, corral human energy. So the world is changing. The world of 207 will not tolerate what it handled at 190, and we will see heads rolling, not on Wall Street, but internationally. I would expect it will continue. So. As we get out of form, we'll see that the power goes up. This is the power. This is what guarantees that you will stay alive until you die. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> the power of the self. See, the ego would have you think that it's responsible for your survival. The ego says, if I wasn't so clever, if I didn't look me and remind you to take your vitamins and all, you'd be dead in a mackerel. <laughs> so the downside of duality, then, 
is, in spiritual work, it creates the illusion that there's a separate I that is the cause of everything. That there's a personal I separate from the infinite oneness of totality. The core of the ego is this egocentric, self-centered point which one assumes to be the cause. So as long as you believe in causality then, you are stuck in a duality of a this causing a that. The pathway to enlightenment through non-duality then dissolves the opposites. The ego is so impressed by popularity, wanting to be right, the vanity and pridefulness of the ego. Give up the vanity of wanting to be right. Spirituality is really a way of being in the world, see? People think of it in terms of the ego's function of doing this. It's not a doing this, it's a way of beingness in the world. All right, it's a way of being with the world in which one is in a constant state of appreciation. Why? Because you become discerning of the beauty of existence. To become benign, to be cordial, to be loving towards all things. If I had not felt loving towards that snake, I would never have lived long enough to tell you the tale, you yeah? know? The respect for all that exists, the respect for all that exists. The willing to see the intrinsic beauty of all of existence. To be benign and to be unconditionally loving towards all things at all times. So if people want to become spiritually evolved, just take one simple thing. People make it so complicated, it's very simple. Let's say the ideal is I wish to see the world the way it is and the only way to see it the way it is is to decide to be loving towards all no matter what. To be respectful, respectful and loving towards all that exists. So to be committed to life in all its expressions, to discern the beauty and perfection of all that exists it is a way of being in the world. So it's not a doingness, it's a beingness. To make rapid spiritual advance, or a person is really serious, you make a decision to be that which fulfills the potential of life and to witness its beauty and perfection in all of its expressions. See, the ego sees everything as in terms of cause. It sees everything as going from imperfection to perfection, from incomplete to complete. In the spiritual vision, you begin to see everything is going from perfection to perfection. Everything is moving from perfection and everything is already complete at the moment. Everything is completely what it is as a consequence of the evolution of creation up to this point. And you see that everything is moving not from incomplete, but from complete to complete, from perfection to perfection. This is a perfect cut on the back of my hand. It's a perfect expression of what happens. And it's a perfect scab and then it'll get to be a perfect healing and it'll leave a perfect scar. Everything is being perfectly what it's destined to be and fulfilling its potential. So instead of causality, what you begin to see is emergence. The world is not a world of cause at all. It's a world of emergence. Everything, every instant has a certain potentiality. So if you begin to see things are not happening due to causality, not due to a personal self, but you see the emergence of potentiality into actuality. 
the fulfillment as the rose opens and becomes a full rose. Nothing is causing it, nothing is forcing it, nothing is even deciding it. The potentiality to open fully its petals already resides within the rose every instant. It's not an imperfect rose half opened, it's a rose that's perfectly half opened. So there, you transform your experience of life and the world and the reality by seeing that everything is perfect every instant. People say, how can you improve this world? I tell them, don't bother. This world is perfect the way it is. There's no point in trying to improve the world because the world you see doesn't even exist. I see the world as, if the purpose of the world is karmic benefit and the evolution of consciousness, then this world is perfect as it is, perfect. This is a very high spiritual understanding. Now that David has given you the ideas, inspiration, and encouragement to begin walking the path of enlightenment, how does one determine the steps to take in order to stay on this path? And how can you be sure that you're progressing along the path and not simply walking in circles? David used a well-known method and developed a breakthrough spiritual tool to help answer these questions. The method he used was that of kinesiology in order to calibrate spiritual truth from falsehood so one could be sure that he or she was following the precepts of a person of integrity for example rather than a wolf in sheep's clothing then using this method of calibration David developed his map of consciousness which we already discussed in the introduction and a copy of which is included with this library outlining calibrated levels of consciousness from zero to a thousand essentially providing a map in which to progress up the enlightenment path. In this volume, we have included some classic segments where David explains the calibration method and the map of consciousness so you can reach the very highest levels of enlightenment. It was discovered by accident. It was a chance observation. It's demonstrated that anything that has a negative energy that you hold against your solar plexus, let's say you hold your right arm or your left arm out parallel with the ground. All right. Now, if you take something like you have somebody else pressed down on your wrist with two fingers, maybe four or five ounces of pressure, you're not trying to break their arm down. It's like somebody presses down with two fingers. The accuracy depends on the consciousness level of the participants. If they're both over 200, then the likelihood is you'll get an accurate result. So both people have to be integrous to begin with. What does integrous mean? It means you're more interested in the truth than trying to prove some preconserved notion that you're having in mind. Huh? So if I hold something that has a negative energy against the solar plexus of a person with their arms stretched out to the side and pressed down on their wrist, their arm will fall down, their arm will drop, they're very weak. If I hold a lot of certain kinds of music, pesticides, there's a whole lot of things. 
If you hold anything that's negative nearby within the aura of the person being tested, when you press down, their arm will go weak. If you hold something or someone in mind that is positive, their arm will go strong. Now, the difference is quite marked. I mean, a person who's very strong will be very strong, and you can press down with two fingers, and you're not really going to push them down. And something that makes them go weak, a child could push them down with two fingers. When they go weak, they go weak. So, for instance, if I take a volume by Plato, if we take a Socrates and hold it against the solar plexus, the person goes strong. If I take the Communist Manifesto and hold it against their stomach, their arm goes weak. Communist Manifesto. Karl Marx calibrates at 130. All right, so you say, how do you know Marx calibrates? So I say, well, Marx calibrates over 110, 120, 130. When I get to 130, that's the end of the S and no. Does he calibrate over 130? The answer is no. All right, I can do the same thing with President Reagan. I can do it with Abraham Lincoln. I can do it with the Great Pyramids in Egypt. I can do it with anything on the planet. Truth makes you go strong. Falsehood makes you go weak. That which is supportive of life. So this has a biologic basis. The capacity to discern essence from appearance is essential to life. If a bacterium doesn't know the difference between that which is poisonous and that which is nutritious, he will soon die and there wouldn't be any bacteria left. So survival depends from a protoplasmic point of view on the capacity to discern that which is pro-life from that which is anti-life and falsehood is anti-life and truth is pro-life. It's like riding a bicycle. It takes some experience. Some people are quite adept at it. First of all, they take my word for what I sing as absolute truth and don't put up a lot of doubt blocks and quizzicalness. If I say it works, it works. If it didn't work, why would I say it works? <laughs> so you have to have a certain trust in the authenticity of people, a sort of intuitive knowingness. I share with people because it's extremely helpful. There are societies in which it is very common. When I was in the East, it was very common. You'd see people shopping and he'd hold a tomato in his hand and she'd press down and if it went weak, it was not a good tomato. There's some people that incorporate it into their culture. The fact that truth makes you strong and falsehood makes you go weak seems to be such basic common sense. You wouldn't think that intellectually people would argue with it. Now, because I don't want to tip off my partner, let's say I'm the person that's doing the testing and my partner is resisting and I'm pressing down with two fingers. I don't want to influence that person's thinking. Now, integrous people, you could say it out loud and it's not going to affect them, but most people are not that integrous. So I'll say, what I say is, what I'm holding in mind calibrates over 100, 150, 200, 250, 300, until I get a yes. So that way I'm not influencing the answer because the person whose arm I'm pressing down doesn't know what I'm holding in mind. I don't want to contaminate the answer. I'm not going to waste my time getting a false answer either. People think, oh, well, you're out to get a false answer. Why would I waste my time getting a false answer? Chase my own tail for amusement. I don't think it's very entertaining. I want to make it count. So I say, now, what I'm holding in mind. So the things we calibrated during the course of these recordings, I would go outside and I'll, I'll say, so-and-so calibrates over so-and-so. Let's say political candidates or programs. I don't want to influence the response because I myself want to know the answer. So if you both want to know what is the truth for truth's sake, then you're going to have a successful team. Like anything, it takes a little practice. Some things will blow you out like negative music. I suggest turn off music, turn off the television. There's all kinds of negative energies coming through. So you're going to get false negatives. 
That's because of the background energy of the music, so you've got to turn off music to help resolve doubt, you know, and all the controversies and gossip and all. Often we'll get up and I'll say, this guy calibrates over so-and-so. I wonder where he's coming from. He sounds like about 160 to me. Well, he was coming from 160. Then somebody else will be on and I just want to know, what is the altitude I'm going to be flying over here? In other words, I want to confirm my own impression. So there's perception and then there's essence. So what I do is I use it to confirm the essence of a thing that I'm not just falling for perception. Because a smooth talker can sound pretty persuasive when you first encounter them anyway. You say, boy, that sounds like a swell guy. And then you do the arm and he comes out 180. You say, oh, what? <laughs> what's the answer? Now I've got a problem. So it's when perception does not match essence that I use it to calibrate are unknown factors, and I want a hurry-up idea of how integrous this is. There are ways you can do it by yourself. Your middle finger and your thumb. You touch your middle finger to your thumb. Now that makes like an O. Now with the forefinger, you make a hook of the forefinger of your other hand. And now you try to pull them apart. Now if something is true, you will find it takes a lot of effort to try and break that O. And if what you're holding in mind is negative or they're a negative person, you'll find it's weak. So right now I'm going to hold a political candidate in mind right now, resist. All right. Now I'm going to hold another political candidate in mind and pull, resist. All right. The first one was very strong. The second one was very weak. So let's say this is just for my own peace of mind, my own degree of certainty. I'm not out to convince anybody with it, you see. And if nobody ever uses the technique, it's okay with me. If you don't have any idea what a thing is altogether, say this is above 200 or this is below 200 or this is above 200 to give you some idea of the range of it. The more you do it, you get pretty perspicacious yourself after you've done a few thousand of these. I can always usually guess the number within a couple of points. You're training your intuition, you're training it. It's an area of life we don't usually train because we have no way to check its veracity usually. But by constantly calibrating things, as I say, you become quite perspicacious and become pretty skilled at it. I'd say at least nine out of 10 times, you're at least within the ballpark of what the reality is. The average person is not. The average person is pretty easy to fool. And they like to pride themselves on the fact they can't be, but the statistics show the contrary is true. As I say, some well-known professors poo-pooed it and I told you it doesn't work for atheists. All right, if you negate the truth, the reality of the truth of God, which is one of the aspects of divinity, then you become disallowed, disenfranchised from using the methodology. So an atheist cannot use it. I don't want to waste time trying. So that takes you out of the ring right to begin with. The people that argue with it are of two kinds. One are just sort of ignorant prejudice, and mainly they're atheists. You'll find that atheists hate it. Why? Because they hate absolutism. They want everything to be relativism. 
The idea that there isn't an absolute to whom one is answerable is anathema. It's the opposite, see? So the fact that it's the most confrontational to the narcissism of the ego. The ego's narcissism is unbridled. It will disavow God. It's greater than God. Here's Joe Podunk from nowhere, who's in a sophomore year in college, and he already knows that there is no divinity. Okay, he calibrates at 192, and divinity calibrates at infinity. So here's this one guy at 192, <laughs> refuting the reality of that which calibrates at infinity. It's, as I said, there's no limits to the expansiveness of the human ego. There's the atheist, it's tied into a belief system. But the primary motive behind it is narcissism. The primary motive behind it is naivete, naivete. They're unaware that the intellect, which calibrates in the 400s, is not in the paradigm to even consider spiritual realities, which are 500 and up. You can't prove or disprove canoeing on the basketball court. They're not applicable. And I say to people who don't believe in the work, don't believe in it. <laughs> I have no interest whether they believe in it or not. Who cares if they believe in it or not? I don't know. I tell you which way I found is east, and if you want to go your own way, you go your own way, but I know which way is east, that's all. People don't understand that what I say, I am obligated to divinity about the truth of it. I'm not saying this for the listener. I'm saying it because I'm responsible and I am answerable, answerable to God for the answer. It's because I'm answerable to God that I give you the truth, see, as I understand it. It's because you're accountable to divinity. So a person who doesn't believe in divinity is accountable to no one except the narcissistic core of his own ego. People who are more spiritually evolved realize that at the moment of death's door, you're about to become answerable in capital letters. <laughs> You're going to either notice something with devils with horns and tails, or you're going to hear angels singing. I don't use the term kinesiology anymore. We just call it muscle testing. See, It's a biologic fact. Biologic fact. The truth makes your body go strong and falsehood makes it go weak. So you don't have to label it anything. It's just a matter of fact. If I hold that which is negative in mind and somebody tests the strength of my arm muscles, they will go weak. And if I hold something uplifting, true, and of a high calibration in mind, the arm goes strong. Now, I don't have anything to do with that. That's a physiologic response. In the lectures, I give the reason for this. The likely reasons are evolutionary, that animal life does not have within it a source of energy. Plant life has chlorophyll. It just sits in the sun and absorbs energy. It doesn't have to acquire or get. Animal life is protoplasmic. It does not have within it any source of energy. It has to acquire it. So in order to survive animal life, protoplasmic life, of which humans are, of course, an example, you have to be able to find out what is nutritious and helpful in pro-life. 
So the first thing the amoeba has to learn is that which you ingest it will increase your strength and survival or that which will kill you. It therefore has to learn at a very low level of consciousness what is pro-life and what is anti-life. What is pro-life makes you strong, vigorous, you multiply and are successful. And if you don't have the capacity, you kill yourself. You only have to make one mistake about confusing what's nutritious and what's poisonous. So you don't get a second chance to relearn because those that didn't learn are dead. Consequently, all human life, the only reason that it's here is because it learned that. If it hadn't learned that, it would have been dead a long time ago. So protoplasmic entities that fail to learn how to differentiate truth from falsehood, poisonous from nutritionists, don't survive. They don't survive. So the fact that any kind of organism is still living means it has within it innately some capacity to discern that which is pro-life from that which is anti-life. If it didn't, it would be dead. So the peoples in Europe who could not differentiate a dictator who was malevolent from a great leader who was beneficial, they lost their lives. To not know the difference between that which calibrates over 200 and that which calibrates extremely below 200 cost 10 million lives. In my lifetime, in Europe, 10 million people died. If you hold Hitler in mind and try and hold your arms straight parallel to the ground, you'll find you're weak. You can hardly hold up a small book. If you hold Jesus Christ in mind, your arm is powerfully strong. If you hold Churchill in mind, your arm goes strong. And if you hold Stalin in mind, your arm goes weak. Now, this is true even if you don't know anything about the person. Let's say if I take a picture of this person and I hold it in mind. So the way I do the test is I ask the person whose arm I'm using. I don't want to influence their response in any way. So I'll say what I'm holding in mind calibrates as true. And then I press down. If it's true, their arm goes strong. If it's false, it goes weak. Or I could say it calibrates over 200. Yes, yes, no. Calibrates over 300. Yes, no. Okay. So what is true then is pro-life and what is pro-life through the acupuncture energy system and the acupuncture meridians make your body go strong instantly. Once you learn how to approach it, if you know how to handle it like anything else, just because you understand physiology doesn't mean you can go without oxygen at 10,000 feet. No, you can't. <laughs> Once you understand the basic principles, it's extremely easy. Now, there's about 10% of the population cannot use it for reasons we don't know yet. Maybe just karmic reasons. Unable to use it. And people under consciousness level 200 cannot use it with any degree of accuracy. So to be accurate then, the person themselves has to be integrous. That means they calibrate 200 or over as a person. And the intention of the question has to be integrous. If I'm going to use the technique to find the best way to rob the bank, you're not going to get answers. I wouldn't rely on them. <laughs> if you want to donate money to a fund, let's say they advertise a fund, and you ask, this fund is integrous, yes, no. And then if you get a yes, you say it's over 200, 300, 400. How integrous is this organization? And then once you know all that, there are some organizations that sound like the greatest philanthropies in the world, and they must spend billions, multi-millions anyway, on television advertising. 
And when you calibrate it, it makes your arm go weak. If it was true, it would make your arm go strong, would it not? So these are ways of working the public. There's certain images that you can routinely milk the public. Each person is different. I look at it pragmatically, pragmatically. And I use it to solve things that are not readily apparent or to confirm something that I presume is apparent, but I want to make sure that I'm not misperceiving it. So you use it sporadically, sometimes you use it intensely. When I'm doing research, I use it rather intensely. If I'm diagnosing today's world, I want to calibrate every politician out there, every big-time spokesman, everybody gets on there with a big spiel, and people's stories and excuses. I say, what's the energy of this candidate? What's the energy of this candidate? Now this candidate tells this story, is that so? All right, this candidate hung out with so-and-so. What does that person calibrate at? So I get a whole picture of multiple aspects because pretty soon what happens is a whole picture begins to fill in. The whole movie set fills in. First you get the wall, then you get the carpet, then your pictures on the wall, then the various actors. And the picture begins to fit in, and then the storyline becomes quite obvious, why this person said this at this time, and you constantly verify. Now people also change, so you may see a change in a prominent person, and you can ask, was this person still at the same level they were, or has this one been bought out? You had to be prepared to find out things you're not going to like to find out, I'll tell you that. Of course, don't forget, the more often you do this, the more things you calibrate, the more experience you have, the greater your degree of accuracy. After you've done it 10,000 times, I can almost look at a thing and tell you about what it's going to calibrate within a couple of degrees just because I've been there. It's a great learning tool. You see, you learn a lot about your own consciousness. You learn a lot about your own motivations. You're not going to get an accurate answer unless you can remove your own personal prejudice and wanting this answer or not that answer. Somebody you think is a scurrilous, horrible person, you find out that they calibrate over 200. Somebody else that you think is going to be the savior of the world and is going to bring us a whole new world, etc., and you find they're under 200, that they're full of hot wind. They're a very adept politician, but a politician is different than a statesman. A politician is one thing, a statesman is another. So Americans don't appreciate the difference. To them, a politician and a statesman are one and the same thing. They're quite different, and they calibrate quite different. The politician is interested in me, 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 and is very glib. They get what they want for their own personal gain. A statesman is what he is for the sake of the world and the sake of the country. Winston Churchill. Britain would have been beaten senseless if it wasn't for Winston. He calibrated 500. So I say Britain in World War II was the heart of the lion, and he was the lion. <laughs> Through kinesiology, then I discovered a phenomena, and that phenomena then allowed for calibrating the levels of consciousness. The phenomena is innate to life. Life, in order to survive in its earliest form, the protozoa. See, the animal kingdom has no source of energy within itself. It has to go outside of itself. This is very fundamental. As you see, the evolution of the ego starts let's say with the protozoa or the amoeba and how can it survive it doesn't have chlorophyll like a plant that just sits in the sun and thrives if it doesn't get energy from out there nutrition out there it dies 
Consequently, one principle of life is you have to be able to sample what's out there and recognize it for what it is. And if you make a mistake, you don't survive. So the organisms still alive in the animal kingdom have a basic intelligence in that they have learned what is beneficial to life and they've avoided that which will poison you. So that innate quality to discern is the discernment of essence. essence. If you make the mistake and eat the wrong looking flower, you die. Mankind learned that. You eat the wrong kind of mushrooms, you're dead. So even man had to learn. So the value of the kinesiologic testing was that we discovered that the response is to the essence and not to the appearance. Mankind's dilemma throughout all of time is he's been unable to discern essence from appearance. And it isn't until the opening of the third eye of the Buddhic body, consciousness level 600 or up, that the human has the capacity to look at a thing and tell whether is it a Trojan horse or peaceniks. <laughs> that a peacenik parade or are they all carrying bombs, you know what I mean? Well, we can tell, but the world can't tell, as you can see by the daily news. <laughs> Take about eight seconds to tell you who's safe and who's not safe, you know what I'm saying? So, how this arose a calibrated map of consciousness, a logarithmic scale one to a thousand, which includes all possibility within this domain. One thousand is the level of the great avatars, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster. It's as high as you can go in this domain. Why? Because human protoplasm can't handle energies beyond that. In fact, from about 800 up, it's very difficult for the nervous system to handle that kind of energy gets very uncomfortable in the 800s, often quite painful and agonizing in fact. And it only goes up to a thousand. If your consciousness goes beyond a thousand, you belong in a different realm and you leave here. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear your protoplasm sizzling in the sun. And <laughs> it's time to let go of the protoplasmic. Uh, <laughs> so because of the limitation of the human nervous system and protoplasm, it only goes up to a thousand. And as we say, archangels calibrated such high frequencies. The one who once noticed me calibrated 50,000. And a passing notice totally changed this life completely. And it was like a devastating shot of a lightning. So just pray that no archangel really thinks about you too much. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke and steam going up and a little cinder laying there. <laughs> so higher isn't always better. It's <laughs> only okay within an okay range. All right, so we're going to cover the basics. So the first thing, of course, is the map of consciousness, which is known worldwide. All these books we've written are in all the world's languages, and study groups utilize them throughout the world. We've used it to solve international conflicts right on the edge of ballistic war, and nip that war in the bud only by knowing the absolute truth. So how to tell truth from falsehood is, of course, as Descartes said, man doesn't know whether reality is what he perceives as reality. There's res interna and then there's res externa, the world the way it is, or nature itself. And of course, Socrates, who's my favorite old teacher, said the same thing. All men are innocent by virtue of the fact that they're unable to discern appearance from essence, truth from falsehood, and that they pursue illusion. They always pursue what they perceive to be the good. That helps us put in place the forgiveness or Christ's statement that the only human error is one of ignorance. 
is the realization that because of limitation, people make errors. And the innocence of the child still resides within all of us. And that's why mankind is dupable, dupable and programmable. Because like the child, the mind tends to believe everything that it hears. Of course, what we learn through this technique is devastating. What actually goes on in the world as compared to its appearance, of course, is quite <laughs> remarkable. Although the world doesn't know what's going on, we do within a matter of seconds. <laughs> the whole world uh, studies a thing and doesn't know what the hell it's about. And I say to Susie, that's over 220. It's at 220, man. It's like it's so simple. So <laughs> the only thing is only people who themselves calibrate over 200 can use the technique. And then they can only use it if their intention is integrous. You can't use the technique to try and prove a point, to try and get the world to agree with you. So you have to be dedicated to truth for its own sake. And then when you find out the truth, you can worry about what to do about it later. But the first thing is, you don't know what the problem is until you ask what is the truth of the matter. So our dedication is to truth, and the basis is the truth is the straight way to God. And nonlinear duality means to let go of the linear appearance of things and to align with the essence, which is the fastest way to enlightenment. The view of God, then, depends on your level of consciousness. Whether you see God as punitive or frightening, or whether you're an atheist and don't believe in God at all, your view of yourself depends on your level of consciousness. It doesn't depend on sociologic conditions, poverty or wealth or any of these things. Your view of yourself then is a consequence of your own level of consciousness. And these levels, we gave these useful names, the spiritualization of these from all the way from enlightenment down to the high levels. 600 is a phenomenal level. In the human domain of very few people, very few get to 500. Fewer yet get to unconditional love at 540. In the world's population, 0.4% of the world's population ever reaches unconditional love. People say, how can I reach unconditional love? I said, well, become an alcoholic and join AA, it's at 540. <laughs> <laughs> Do the Course of Miracles, the workbook is at 600. The textbook I would ignore, it's at 550 and it's got everything. <laughs> Just do the workbook, that's all you gotta do. Keep it simple. So any of those ways all depend on simplicity. The willingness to be forgiving, the willingness to live one day at a time, to put them into your life in daily application, to make them part of your life. So, that means you have to give up the pleasure of condemning people. <laughs> I thought we were going to pick on the Pope today. Reason is in the 400s. Love is 500. Unconditional love and beyond unconditional love. So these states, we start out with shame, disaster, guilt apathetic, fearful, angry. We get up, to this level of 200 is very critical. 
It's very critical, because we'll see, at level 200, the willingness to be honest, self-honesty is the only requirement of any of these spiritual programs. Self-honesty automatically puts you above level 200. From here up, you're interested in the truth for its own sake. And what happens here is extremely important because the brain chemistry shifts. You shift from left brain animal instinctual dominance of the ego, the kundalini energy arises, and you now shift to right brain, which sees things in a benign, processes information differently, and it also releases neurotransmitters and neurohormones that alter the way your brain physiology works. So people hoping that everybody in the world is going to get together and sing songs and dance around the maypole and we're going to be happy is forgetting that the people below 200 have a different brain physiology and frankly to them you sound like an idiot. <laughs> So all the do-gooder peaceniks that want to envision a new peaceful world are forgetting that 85% of the world calibrates below 200. In America, approximately 50%. And these people have a different brain physiology, brain physiology, in which what you're saying to them is nonsensical, meaningless, and probably absurd, and for which you actually deserve to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> That makes it a little tacky, how you're going to turn this into a one peaceful world. <laughs> so people are always saying, you know, what can I do to help the world? Well, to be quiet and mind your own business is a good start. <laughs> Why? Because what actually helps the world, and with research we can prove this is true, what helps the world is your personal spiritual evolution. That's what helps the world. Your kindness to others begins to lift the overall level of consciousness of mankind, which unfortunately was up high and now it's come down again. So the consciousness level of mankind was at 190 for many, many thousands of years. Consciousness level of mankind at the time of Jesus Christ was about 100. It slowly came up to 190, and it stayed at 190 over the centuries, the 1800s, early 1900s. In this lifetime, it was still at 190. And then in the late 80s, at the time of the harmonic concordance or convergence, it suddenly jumped to 205. And it stayed at 205. The next time there was a harmonic concordance or convergence, we were giving a lecture in San Francisco. And at the exact time of this event, consciousness level of mankind went from 205 to 207. In fact, it's documented and recorded. It went to 207. Since that time, it stayed steady and then it slowly started to decrease again. So it was at 207. Then it came down to 206, 205, and now it's come down to 204. 204, which is a little close to the line because 200 is really the critical line. <laughs> because of two things. The effect of the philosophy of relativism and all of its invasion of integrity and truth, together with the people dedicated to violence. violence. So between violence on one side and apologists for the violent people on the other side, the world has come down. So that's not really our concern. We'll let God worry about it. Because this world is perfect. The world is perfect as it is. 
I don't want any world improvers here. <laughs> the world is perfect. Why is it perfect? Because it offers maximum karmic potential of choice. The spirit cannot evolve unless it has choice. If you're forced to always be a certain way, there's no karmic merit. So because you take the responsibility for the evolution of your own consciousness, and every second you are making a choice, and the human spirit is sort of like a karmic track, leaves a karmic track, and I always picture that it's like a little tiny iron filing, and the infinite field of consciousness is like an infinitely powerful electromagnetic field, so that by virtue of that which you have become, you position yourself within the field. So there's no judgmental God who says you're being bad and you're being good. If you're good, we'll reward you, move you here. If you're bad, we'll put you down here. You of your own choice. Nobody steers your canoe but you. You by your own choices and by your own agreement more or less change the charges on yourself. Let's say this is positive and negative. I say, you're an SOB and I hate you. And then you get a little more negative and then you say, but I forgive you. And then you go a little more positive. <laughs> because you probably don't know what you were doing like Socrates said. On the other hand, you ought to by now and then you move down a little bit. So you see, you're, you're like a little thing like this fluctuating in the electromagnetic spectrum. And the spirit is what survives uh, when it leaves the body. It goes to that which it is. It goes to that which it is. So I agree with Freud that the negative depictions of God are projections from the human unconscious. However, Freud then went on and made a mistake. He went further than that. He said, therefore, a true God doesn't exist. No, because a false God doesn't exist doesn't mean a true one doesn't. So that's why Freud calibrated 499. <laughs> The 400s are extremely powerful and important. Love is 500, joy is 540, you get up to 600. And as you reach the higher levels, unconditional love, I think, is the best goal to aim for in human life. It is reachable within the human domain. The states of enlightenment are very difficult to reach in today's world. But unconditional love, Unconditional love then means that you leave and you move into heavenly and celestial realms, and it's certainly better than Brooklyn, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to save the world, I would suggest the first thing you do is let go and surrender the world to God, which is the same thing that the great teachers have said, because the world that you see doesn't even exist. It's all a projection of your own perception. So you can let go of wanting to change it because all you're changing is your own projections that you projected out there. You're not changing anything in the world at all. Unless a man has a choice between good and evil, how's he going to transcend? You don't have any enemies, so you got left to forgive, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm a failure. I haven't got anybody left to forgive. Now what do I got to do in the Course of Miracles? <laughs> <laughs> Spiritual work is primarily yin, primarily yin. It's yang by its intention, but it's yin by its operation, by means of which I ask God, what is the answer to a thing? And then I step back and allow the space for revelation. So progress is often through, without even thinking, you just have a feeling, a knowing, or an intuition. And then if you know kinesiology, you can just check it out for affirmation.
and has been very, very useful. The enlightened and divine states, the Supreme Godhead, all these things calibrate at 1,000 or over. The majority of the world's population calibrates below 200. Why doesn't the world go to pieces and just destroy itself? It gets close to it periodically. Mankind has been at war 93% of recorded time, 93%. The other 7% he was too sick or too poor probably, the plague was on him. <laughs> Couldn't get his butt together to get out there and kill somebody. <laughs> so, why doesn't the world just self-destruct? It's because it's a logarithmic scale. So logarithmically, the advance of a few points is enormously powerful. In fact, in the United States, even just a couple of people calibrate so high and logarithmically the power is so great that it totally counterbalances the negativity of mankind, which would self-destruct. So those who are 200 and up, who are all here today, <laughs> are keeping the world from going down the tubes. So the relative power, because it's logarithmic, is so enormous that it counterbalances the negativity. Now, we just want to show the source of the evil, of the ego. <laughs> evil, because you see, consciousness began at a very primitive level, the consciousness level. Over billions, billions and billions of years, the consciousness level slowly arose over great earth epochs. The consciousness level of life itself, the total consciousness level of life on the planet, has evolved over millions and millions and millions of years, very, very slowly. Sometimes the consciousness level of the animals has kept it up. Even though man has been lower than 200 many times, you see there are many animals on the planet, there are over 200. Aha! <laughs> Somebody said, well, the consciousness level of man is at 204 or something. How come you got life is at 212? Because we got kitties, doggies. <laughs> A dog's wagging tail is at 500. What did the shoe bomber calibrate at? I think about 70 to 90 or something like that. So I don't want to say anything that might hurt people's feelings. <laughs> But cats and dogs do better, and chimpanzees and gorillas. You're safer with Coco, the gorilla, than you are with most of the people on the subway, I tell you. <laughs> Coco won't steal your purse and run. Monkeys, the family dogs, family cats. Of course, the more cats you have, the higher your level of consciousness. <laughs> Our cats support our level of consciousness at home. Without the cats, we would probably collapse. And horses and elephants, and of course, elephants get mad too. And dairy cows. These are all primarily herbivores. And when you see how life starts out at the lowest level, we come up through the fish, the octopus, the Komodo dragon and predatory mammals, you see, life is voracious. Below consciousness level 200, it only can survive by eating others, eating others, killing others. And then as consciousness level goes higher, you get to the herbivores. You get to the herbivores. So you see, 
at consciousness level 200. Here we have wolves and foxes, and then all of a sudden at the level 200, you shift to zebras, giraffes, deer, bison, even domestic pigs, the elk, the dairy cows, sheep, range cattle. You see the shift, you eat grass and you're not killing anybody, whereas the dinosaur has to kill, he has to kill in order to eat, so his nature is to kill. He's not being bad or evil, that's just his nature. He's reflecting the level of consciousness. So many people on the planet who seem to be focused on killing them, it's because their level of consciousness is attuned to be less than 200. And therefore, the left brain, the instinctual left brain physiology takes over, in which killing becomes exciting, fun, and rewarding. We talked about the 400s as being, you might say, man reached his greatest intellectual excellence in probably around 350 BC. Ancient Greece, philosophically, there really hasn't been any improvement since that time. And here we calibrate the great books of the Western world, and we find it's very interesting. Overall, collectively, it calibrates around 460. So intellectual excellence, intellectual truth, reason, is in the 400s. In the old days, a liberal education meant to study all of these writers. And there is still a foundation for the study of the great books. They advise you to take 10 years. So you spend 10 years and you will then share common understanding with all the greatest minds that have ever lived, at least within the intellectual and philosophic realms. So the difficulty of something of a very low calibration is that this then starts off a trend which becomes self-propagating in the form of memes, M-E-M-E-S, becomes self-propagating. So an infection like this can then spread throughout the world. People say, how can I become spiritual? Well, I say, first just become a decent human being. Try that. <laughs> be considerate, decent, be responsible. If you say you're going to close the door when you leave, please do so. People have to be able to count on you, you have to be honest. Here's really the Protestant ethic, isn't it? No offense to Catholics or other people, but... <laughs> Everything's so political nowadays, you can't say anything. Anyway, classically it's called frugality, hard work, etc. Nose to the grindstone. You tend to be moral and you live according to your own morality. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody's, but at least you have ethical standards. You tend to be helpful and easygoing, thoughtful, calm. You tend to be genuine and not fake. Respect people and you're friendly and easy to talk to and safe to be with. And if somebody lends you something, you give it back. That includes books. <laughs> <laughs> also includes lawnmowers. <laughs> you esteem wisdom. Wisdom is at 385. These people tend to be benign. They're safe to be with. You know, it's safe to be with them. They're as safe as cocoa. Tend to be humane, tend to be happy, sensible. They're called the soul of the earth. There are various energy fields, chakra systems, as you're all aware, the various chakra systems. One collection of energy is at lower mind, lower mind at 155. There's another collection of energy that we call higher mind, higher mind. They have two different sets of values. What one setting considers to be valid and true and ethical, the other considers to be invalid and, in fact, immoral. 
the lower mind then is very interested in sensationalism and is very gullible. It's interested in being smart, exploiting life. So you'll recognize television right away. It likes to play off the sensational. It'll take some trivial little incident that is of no significance and give it major playtime and something that really is of profound importance and really threatens all of mankind and they give it only a glance. 275 and up is a higher mind and it is into thoughtful balance and sensitivity to what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. So this mind tends to look for solutions and this mind tends to play off difficulties. So there's a big payoff here, you see, to this level mind. So 85% of the people in the world, their intellect is at this level. In America, only about 50%. About 50% of people would rather watch something gory and horrible and sensational, rather than something that is inclusive of beauty, let's say, merely looking at it. So the power of consciousness was now recognized and therefore it was very interesting. Einstein, you see, who was a master of the linear dimension, calibrated 499, and he refused to recognize the role of consciousness, refused its reality. He said, I prefer to think there's a distinct objective linear reality out there. So we can calibrate, we've calibrated all these things. So the reason is that this gives you a scientific basis to understand how the phenomenal world occurs. I always tell people, notice that everything is happening spontaneously. The limitation of the ego is it thinks there's a personal I as a cause. And based on the Newtonian principle, this causing of that, in reality there is no this causing any that. In fact, that phenomenon is not a possibility. <laughs> because evolution and creation are one and the same thing. So what you see is the emergence of potentiality as a consequence of evolution. The reason for religious conflict is a lack of comprehension of the nature of divinity itself. It sees a God who starts here and then one day creates all there is and disappears. <laughs> then after you die, you face him on, great, on Judgment Day. I don't know where he goes in the meantime, but he goes somewhere. <laughs> It's because the mind doesn't comprehend infinity. To transcend the mind, which is based on cause and effect in the Newtonian paradigm in science, you have to shift to a higher awareness. Stop projecting the idea of causality into the world. There is no causality in the world. There is none out there. All that you receive and prove and think is so out there is from your head projected onto the world. Within the world, there is no causality. There is sequence. Sequence is not in the world either. Sequence, it means you perceived it sequentially. Therefore, you project it must be in the world. It's your perception that's sequential. <laughs> How do things come about? The quickest way to enlightenment is to focus then and notice that everything is, first of all, absolutely perfect. Everything is exquisite, perfect, and beautiful as it is. And that things come about as a result of potentiality actualizing. Potentiality actualizes as a perceivable reality. 
So what you're witnessing always is emergence of potentiality. Witnessing emergence of potentiality. The emergence of potentiality is for this arm to rise. This arms to rise. It does it by itself. You think there's a you causing it? I don't have anything to do with it. It rose itself spontaneously. All is occurring spontaneously because of the emergence of potentiality as actuality when conditions are favorable. That's nonlinear dynamics, etc. When conditions are favorable, so the conditions also have to be favorable. So you don't make the flower grow. I never saw anybody that made a flower grow. Did you ever meet anybody that made a flower grow? <laughs> Thank you, God. Yeah. <laughs> when you plant something, you're taking advantage of what I just got through saying. And all you're doing is when you add conditions that are favorable, such as sunlight, water, and fertilizer, but the potentiality is within the seed. And it actualizes within the phenomenal world, not as causality. You can't force a flower to bloom. Also, you get rid of the idea of imperfection. Because here is has the potential to become a rose. So the rose is half unfolded. Now you're going to tell me that's a bad rose, a defective rose, something wrong with the rose? No. You see what happens is the potentiality actualizes and it opens and becomes actualized to your perception. Nothing is causing it to do that. You can't force a rose to do anything. It does it of its own because it has innate within it. its essence is the potentiality to manifest that way within the linear domain. So all you're seeing is phenomena within the linear domain. The energy of life is non-linear, non-definable. And so what I'm working on now is to resolve the dilemma of the Scopes trial, which has to do with the argument between is reality limited to the linear or does reality go on to include the nonlinear? The reason the Scopes trial couldn't be resolved is because they were talking about two different paradigms. The levels of consciousness go from, let's say, one to a thousand. Science is within the 400s, and spiritual reality starts from 500 and up. They're two different paradigms. So you can't resolve oil and water <laughs> because they're two different paradigms. Science can neither prove nor disprove spiritual reality, nor vice versa. It's a different paradigm. So what I'm trying to do is create a paradigm that includes both and shows that you're just moving from one paradigm to another, and that would be inclusive of both science and religion. So you see, they're both true, and both 100% true within their own paradigms. So the ignorance there was the two sides expecting each other to agree with what is really a different paradigm of reality. It's analogous to the scale of consciousness. And so then we went on to study various religions and uh, you can calibrate the levels of movies, books, writers, TV uh, programs. So everything then represents a greater or a lesser degree of spiritual energy. And the greater the spiritual orientation, the alignment with truth, the higher the calibration. And so we have this calibrated scale of consciousness, which its greatest usefulness is merely to say yes or 
not yes. So you would say, this spiritual teacher is integrous and useful for my life, and you get a yes or a not yes. Or you might say, it's too soon, maybe I should wait with this one. It'll say yes or not yes. So one can use it for guidance, and spiritual students who are really um, committed to transcending the ego and reaching the higher spiritual states have found it quite useful. We found that the reason we used a thousand as the top of the scale is we asked, what is the highest consciousness that has ever existed on the planet? We got 1,000 is, is the limit of possibility within the human domain that the human nervous system cannot really handle the energy that calibrates much over, over 1,000. That the Buddha, Christ, Krishna, all the great avatars calibrated at 1,000. It's not really possible to survive with a, you might say, the voltage is too high for the human nervous system. When you get over a thousand, and even getting to a thousand can be quite agonizing. That what we call enlightenment occurred at a level that calibrated at 600. When a person goes into 600, they go into the levels of love, first conditional love, then unconditional love. Then many become interested in spiritual pathways and meditation and spiritual techniques. And they begin to pursue them with greater and greater dedication. And as they do, they begin to experience life in a transformative, completely different context. In the high 500s, which are quite amazing, one is overcome by the sheer beauty of everything. The only reality that exists is love. There is only love, and all you see is love, and all you experience is love and beauty. Love and beauty and harmony, and the miraculous begins to happen spontaneously and eventually becomes continuous. A lot of people have done the Course in Miracles go into that transformative state. You drive into the city and you think of a parking space, and as you get there, there's a parking space right in front of Lincoln Center. In fact, the one and only parking space, just as you pull up, a car pulls out and you pull in. When this first begins to happen, you sort of remark about it. After a while, you begin to experience that that's the way life is. It's the continuous miraculous. <laughs> the, the, the miraculous is ongoing and continuous. <laughs> and everybody becomes stunningly beautiful and handsome, stunningly attractive. One's in love, no, not falls in love. One is in love with everything and everyone all the time. And one can only see the beauty and the perfection of everything. And then, the state may reach, in the very high 500s, ecstasy. One can start going into states of indescribable ecstasy, like the opening of a brilliance within one's consciousness, and the ecstasy is continuous. At that point, you can't function in the world anymore. The ecstasy then, well, Ramakrishna described it, I remember going through it myself, forget functioning in the world. You can dance, you can dance in a, like an expression of exquisite ecstasy at the joy of one's existence. And one cannot function. And then one has to surrender that to God. So each step along the way of the levels of consciousness is surrendering whatever is presenting itself to God. 
Finally, even the state of ecstasy, one has to surrender the state of ecstasy to God. And then one hits level 600, which is a state of infinite silence, bliss, and a profound peace beyond all understanding. The peace of God is beyond psychological peace or emotional peace. It's a different dimension. And in that state, you don't have to eat, breathe, function. When bliss is out, outside of time, sat chitananda it's called classically. And if things are favorable, the body will eventually get fed, move up and walk around and survive. If the conditions are not favorable to that circumstance, which frankly is irrelevant, then it just topples over eventually. So about 50% of the people who go into a latent state, frankly, leave. <laughs> the one awareness that is quite obvious in that state is that you have permission to leave. You can leave right now, in fact. You can just take off the headphones and stop. One has permission. So what's going to keep the body going? Well, you see, there's no needs and no wants. Everything is complete and total. The bliss of the state is that everything is complete. So from that moment on, if the body survives, you don't ever really need anything anymore. People say, what do you want? Well, I don't want anything. What do you need? Well, I don't need anything. Certain things would be nice, but you don't need them. And so one is then independent of the world. What the world says or does is really quite irrelevant. At that point, it was impossible to function, I remember in that state. So what happens if you survive is most people leave the world. <laughs> Which is, yes, yeah, what I did. So you pack up everything and throw all your tools in the back of your old truck and you say goodbye and you leave which is what I did. So I left the biggest practice in the country and a very elite lifestyle, etc. And uh, drove to a small town. You know, in the refrigerator, there'd be a banana, two Pepsis, and a piece of cheese, and that was fine. I mean, what more do you need? Now that you have a clearer understanding of how to calibrate spiritual truth and the map of consciousness, you are ready to begin elevating your level of spiritual consciousness to its highest potential. In this volume, David will give you several ideas for doing just that, such as relinquishing the quest for perfection, following evolved spiritual values rather than dogmatic religious doctrines, and being grateful, introspective, and compassionate. The realization that that which you are is not limited by this world, or even definable by this world, it's not measurable by this world, and it's not visible to this world. By looking at it, you can tell, you know, what is your spiritual level or what is your spiritual worth or whatever you want to call it. 
So you want to transcend the world that is to be in it, but not of it, not limited by it. To be limited by it is to buy all of its programs. To buy all of its programs, you're going to have to run around and buy everything that's for sale. Because if you're successful, you'll have new carpets and you'll have a new house. And so you can't possibly meet all the definitions of making it in this world, you see. Because you should have more friends, you should be handsomer, you should be six foot tall. There's something you can find fault with yourself, you'll never be satisfied. So the thing is to be happy with what you are at the moment and also see that you're an evolving human being. Therefore, you don't have to be perfect because you're not required to be perfect. You're only expected to make the best possible use you can of the advantages here, to learn and to grow, to learn and to grow, and to support others and to be loving and forgiving, yes? Then you're doing all you can do as a human being. There are less religionists and more spiritually evolved people. More people who call themselves spiritual rather than religious. And it's because of the downside of religion historically. They don't want to be aligned with that because of historic. Every religion historically had things happen in it that would disqualify it hypothetically. How can they have made such a mistake? How can I believe in a church that believed in that or made that mistake? What actually goes on is people call themselves spiritual, that's the most common pattern in today's world, and they begin to follow spiritual values, and they learn from spiritual teachers, alive or historical. And most spiritual teachers have considerable followings of people that are interested in evolving and growing, maturing spiritually in their levels of consciousness. And they may stay with one teacher or they may go to a number of teachers. There was a period of time of being a spiritual seeker where you go to lots of lectures by all different kinds of spiritual teachers and each one has something valuable that you can pick up from each one. Techniques or ways of looking at things or blind spots that you weren't aware you had until you hear a lecture on it and you say, wow, that's a big blind spot with me, I never thought of that. So you seek, you become a spiritual seeker. So spiritual really means seeking. See, religion, you found the answer. It's this church and this denomination, and that's the answer. Now you just have to perfect how you apply it to yourself. The spirit person says, I'm spiritual, but not religious, usually becomes a seeker. They go to various lectures, they attend meetings and retreats, and they listen to all the various teachers and learn something from each one. Each spiritual teacher has something. And what they have may be nonverbal, the subtle enthusiasm they have for certain concepts, etc. And they pick up that enthusiasm. So each teacher has something to share and something that can be learned. Most of my own audiences, a percentage of them, listen to a number of different speakers. All of these may be suitable at various periods of your life. There are certain times when going on spiritual retreats is extremely valuable. 
And then there's other times when it's just a way of avoiding the responsibilities of life. You really have a lot you should have done home this weekend and said you're going to go on a retreat to Camp Babao, you know, <laughs> and all go home. I mean, that's great. When you get home, the lawn still hasn't been mowed. The kids are still crying. You didn't help the other kid with their homework. So you don't know when you're running away, you're really doing it for an advantage. Most of these spiritual things serve a purpose at certain periods of your life. I've noticed most people change their pattern as they go through life, if they're going to evolve. Other people just develop a perfect pattern and stay with that, stay with that for a lifetime. I knew an elderly lady who had gone to early Mass every single day of her life, and she was about 70 when I got to know her. Went to Mass every single morning, 6 o'clock Mass, had communion, and did that every day of her life. There she perfected something there. There's something you can see perfected. She put aside all self-centeredness, etc. And she felt that was her religious obligation. She was very devout. I'm sure she's in heaven by now. <laughs> sure she's in heaven. <laughs> Maybe a supervisor, huh? <laughs> Crew leader in heaven. <laughs> so as you evolve spiritually, you become more and more aware of what your motivation is. What your motivation is. To just be grateful that you're interested in the spiritual dimension, that's already something to be grateful for. I mean, how many people lead a blind life? They calibrate at 192 when they come onto the planet, and when they leave, they calibrate at 192. So they really blew a whole lifetime just doing the same nasty sort of selfish, self-centered, greedy thing all the time to take advantage. So to be grateful to be born a human is what the Buddha said. Rare it is to be born a human, rarer still it is to have heard of enlightenment, and rarest of all it is to have heard of enlightenment and dedicate oneself to its pursuit. That's the rarest of all. So to be dedicated to the searching for the truth is the rarest of all possible gifts. To be a human, you can undo negative karma, gain positive karma, and if you use these lifetimes on earth wisely, reach enlightenment. So, to be grateful that one is a human and that one has heard of the truth. I think to be introspective, you can't walk around naively oblivious of who you are and how you come across to people and etc. So a certain degree of self-awareness and the capacity for self-criticalness to be able to see your upside, your downside, your limitations, accept the reality of your personality where it is, to be introspective and to be reflective. Somebody will suggest something and you say, well, I have to reflect on that. It means you're going to hold it in mind and various facets begin to reveal themselves. You forget all about it and then you have a peanut butter sandwich and in the middle of the sandwich you realize other significances of it how it affects your relationships with others, how it reflects the fulfillment of things you've held in mind, the implicit limitations of what you feel you would not be able to do, etc. So significance and fulfillment, all these things become consequences of reflective. So a self-reflective life 
what do they say, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? <laughs> to be conscious and aware. And, you know, many people are extremely oblivious how they come across to others and oblivious to major blind spots and repetitious. They make the same mistake for decades and you say, well, haven't they gotten any feedback from the world or reflected on that? Don't you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the capacity to constantly learn, to learn, to have an open mind. To be able to, has to do with perspicacity, the capacity to discern and observe. And of course, one of the things about being a physician is one of the innate qualities you need is perpicacity. And over the years, I could always tell outside my office, I would hear the next patient coming across the floor to the office door, and I could already tell you whether they were better or worse than last time. Somehow the rate, the gait, the rhythm, their stance as they walked into the room, they didn't have to say anything already. You had concluded or surmised at least a great deal about the person. So perspicacity, you have to be able to witness the slightest alteration in things to be aware of that. There are people that are completely oblivious. They walk around in a dream state or something, seem to be completely oblivious to the obvious. So interest in the evolution of one's own consciousness and how it's evolved over time, how it expressed itself in ancient times. And you can say, is that still present in today's world? Are there people that still are mystics in this world that speak from the self, etc.? So curiosity leads to learning. Curiosity leads to learning. That's how the little amoeba stays alive. It has to constantly search around and find what's to eat or is not going to be here. People do get addicted to the accumulation of knowledge for its own sake. And that's probably just a phase that people go through. Sooner or later, probably, one begins to realize that it has to be put into actual practice and not just be intellectually conversant. That's just part of the evolution of one's spiritual awareness. First, you accumulate the information. Then you pursue the information to experience for yourself the truth of it. People very often start out with intellectual curiosity. And they'll buy just about any and every book they can on spirituality. I went through that phase myself one time. I had a whole one wall of books on everything you can think about. Pseudo-spirituality, true spirituality, and all kind of psychic readings, and people on the other side, and channelings, and God knows what, anything. And then discernment arose over the years. So there's a curiosity, sort of a wide-eyed amazement that there are realms that you weren't even aware of. I mean, you can go through formal schooling and never be aware that there's anything other than the logical, the linear, and the concrete. And suddenly you become aware that there are all dimensions. You know. The personal will is trying to accomplish something as a very specific goal. It usually has to do with gain or dominance or control in some way. The spiritual will is more in the field of surrender. Now the personal will is only as strong as one's level of consciousness. So sometimes people will want to accomplish something by personal will and that would require much more power than the personal will. So if, let's say you live at consciousness level 190, and now through personal will, you're going to try to overcome a certain thing. You don't have enough power at consciousness level 190. When you get up to consciousness level, let's say 500, now you would have the power to overcome it, but you haven't got enough horsepower in the engine to do it at that level. And therefore, to align yourself with a more powerful field is what people do. Let's take people coming off addiction. Well, the addiction may take you all the way down to consciousness 90, 
All right, to surrender to God's will is something that you don't have the strength to do yourself. So let's say somebody takes you to an AA meeting, well, AA calibrates at 540. Wow. All right, at the consciousness level of 540, somebody says well, you could let go of that if you wanted to, and suddenly it dawns on you, that's true. <laughs> it isn't could you, it's would you. So when people have trouble making spiritual decisions, I tell them, here's what you do. Person says, I can't possibly forgive my ex-brother-in-law for what he did to me. And I'd say, now, if I have a 45 loaded next to your temple, and if you don't forgive him, I'm going to blow your brains out. Could you forgive him? Oh, yes, I could. So I said, well, that clearly differentiates then could from would. And mostly what people think could is just that they wouldn't. They're unwilling to do it. If you're willing to forgive anybody, you can forgive anybody for anything. So it's the will. So surrendering the will to God, you see, divine will calibrates extremely high, about 850. Your personal will, your 190, is something different. So when you surrender your will to God, now you can accomplish the miraculous. You can accomplish the miraculous. It isn't you that accomplishes it. You've surrendered the small self to the large self. The large self counts on the will of God to accomplish its goals. And therefore, it's capable of performing the miraculous. And when you get to a certain level of consciousness, the miraculous becomes continuous. What the people think are miraculous is just naivete. Well, when you get to a certain level, around 570, 580, around in there, the miraculous becomes ordinary. You hold the thing in mind, it manifests, and you don't go, oh, isn't that amazing? That's the way it all happens. It all unfolds based on how it's being held in mind. And it's because of the power of the self with a capital S can accomplish what the small self cannot do, even though its life depends on it. People, you know, try and they actually die in the attempt. They do not have the power. Because force results in counterforce. And surrender pulls you in a powerful context. So when you say, God, I of myself am unable to do a certain thing, and I ask you if it is your will that it be accomplished. And then you surrender it. At that point, you surrender it. You don't keep insisting that God do it or not do it. Or <laughs> At that point, you relinquish the personal will. And that which you thought was going to be impossible now comes about in the most miraculous and unbelievable way, you see. And if you put a string of what you know experiences the miraculous together, a skeptic would have a hard time trying to figure out how best to answer such a number of phenomena. And when the phase of the cities, S-I-D-D-H-I-S, appears, the miraculous is numberless and almost continuous. And one would wonder how to explain this from the viewpoint of sort of pedestrian logic and simplicity of scientific thinking. How is it that in the entire parking paradox of New York City, could you pull up right in front of the upper house and the one single parking space suddenly opens up just as you drive up. Well, that's the way it was for years. What's the probability of that? Practically nothing. That was followed by something else in which the probability. So you're followed one phenomenon after another in which the statistical probability is nil. And when you put them together, the nil plus nil plus nil plus nil, you say, how do you explain this phenomena? How do you explain this phenomena? not know where you're going, drive in a strange town and drive up right exactly to the place you wanted to go because all you did is hold it in mind. I used to do that all the time. Just held in mind in Florida, all around lakes that I didn't know one lake from another and it was Derek besides. Hold in mind what I want to go and I automatically drive exactly to the front of where I wanted to go with no map and no knowledge of the territory. 
So that's just one example. But those things are continuous. There's a phase where it goes on for years. The unfolding of everything is continuous. You need a pair of pliers, so you look over out the window of the truck, and there not only is the pliers laying there by the road, but they're a brand new pair of pliers. Not only lying there within arm's reach, but brand new. And you don't even say, wow, anymore, because this is the way life has become. So if you think I'm hungry, around the next turn, there's a hamburger joint. There you are. Life just becomes one hamburger joint after another. Gloria and Excelsius Theo. <laughs> it's very easy to see that everything is happening spontaneously, that even your thinkingness is happening all of its own. And you think that you're deciding what you're going to think, but you're not. <laughs> so you get detached from your own thinkingness, the same as the world. You see the world around you is moving without your help, right? All these people are managing to survive without you helping them to be here and move and talk. And so what you do is you get detached and you begin to become the witness. To become the witness is not a difficult step. It's only a matter of letting go of the narcissistic self-indulgence of the thinking of that there's an I causing things. Nothing is causing anything. There are no causes in the world. <laughs> <laughs> There's only consequences. And so what you do is you let go of identifying with the linear and you realize that your reality is non-linear. That which is witnessing and then behind that which is witnessing, that which is aware that you're witnessing and already you've removed yourself from out there an individual personal I and the guilt and anxiety of being the cause of all that happens and you've moved into the condition of humility. With profound humility, you would see that you're not the cause of anything. <laughs> Which is welcome news, because that means you're also not guilty of anything. <laughs> Something happens, you say, I don't know, the mind did it. <laughs> the mind did it. I can't help it, the mind did it. So, to become the witness then, you become aware then of the spontaneity of evolution and you begin to witness. All phenomena are the evolution of creation. Creation has a source but no cause. It has no beginning and it has no end. You witness the enfoldment of creation. There is no problem about creation because it's what you're witnessing. The fact that it's all happening spontaneously is not difficult to see. It's not difficult to move from the participant subject out there, the linear, and move into being the field out of which you're being aware of the phenomena. That, that which you are is the field and not the content of the field. This observation escapes about 99% of mankind. <laughs> At least 99% of humanity is completely unaware of what we're talking about this morning. <laughs> we're not counting on widespread acceptance. That you are the context rather than the content. You are that from which awareness radiates and out of which consciousness arises. The source is consciousness itself. 
the light of God is consciousness. The light of God is your own consciousness. And as you let go of misidentifying with that which you are not, it becomes stunningly apparent. At which point you retire. <laughs> and they call the doctor. <laughs> He's lost his wits. That's true, you do lose your wits. And sometimes it's worse than others. So today I am witless and you'll have to put up with that condition. The sound of God is silence. That's a thousand. Calibrates at a thousand. The sound of God is silence. To have sound, you have to have linearity. You have to have that which is sound and that which is not sound. And then you have to give configuration to the sound. Therefore, mantras and things and going boom and things will take you to a certain level. And beyond that, you become aware of the silence behind the sound. And so the purpose of the sound is to take you to the silence. That's why repeating a mantra repeatedly can sometimes really just lead to an altered state of consciousness. And the high feeling that you get disappears when you stop the mantra. So they all have limited usages. There are assists at certain points, but you can't put your whole life as a mantra. You can put your whole life as a prayer because a prayer is a verbalization of a nonlinear intentionality of prayer to make your life a prayer, to become that, to become that. And that which you are speaks louder than what you say. Essence speaks louder than perception. The levels of consciousness, as I say, it doesn't say that you're better than others. It's not a matter of better. Because our status-oriented society, we say it's better. It's not better, it's different than. Different than. And very often to be in a different than state of consciousness that is not appropriate to where you are, it can be a hindrance, you understand? To be blissed out when you're driving is not so great. <laughs> you have to pull over. So you have to sort of be in what's appropriate. But that begins to adjust itself automatically. But it is true that if you suddenly advance to a high state, you may be quite incapacitated. So it's well to have spiritual friends, hang out with spiritual people, spiritual friends, and you let them know that you're seriously in studying, etc. You don't use ritual to get things done in the world. What you do, what happens is that which you have become. Now, it's the intrinsic power of that which you have become influences phenomena around you by virtue of what you have become. In other words, you don't have friends in all because you took a course on how to be friendly and have friends and influence. You become a person that once you are in the room, the room is different. Phenomena occur only because you are there. The energy of integrity and alignment with divine will is sufficiently powerful that it influences everything within its field. So the potentiality becomes an actuality under appropriate conditions. So the way the world appears as emergence then is potentiality expressing itself as actuality when it's activated by the will, by the intention, and favored by local conditions. That's sort of Sheldrake's hypothesis. 
a little more elegant than Sheldrake puts it, but Sheldrake also says, things will follow a design that you are holding in mind unwittingly. So that which you become then, the power of that becomes transformative. And one is content with that. Either the contract signed up the way you hoped it would or it wouldn't. And if it didn't, then you say, hmm, could be some reason that it's not well for our company to have signed up with this particular contractor. You try to accept everything with goodwill. What people think is it's what you do or what you say or how you behave. No, it's the consequence of that which you are. So that which you are, if you sit alone in a cave, is influencing the consciousness level of mankind, even if you sit alone in a cave. It radiates out as an energy. So each one's contribution raises the level of the sea, you see? People say, what can I do to help the world and all this? One thing you can do is quit trying to help the world. That would be of greater service probably than anything. But the real thing you can do is become the fulfillment of your own potential. Why? Because each inch that the sea rises lifts all the ships afloat. Now, nobody has enough strength in and of himself to lift the ship, and yet everybody contributing. So when everyone aligns themselves with spiritual integrity to be as unconditional loving as possible, then we all lift the level of the sea. And by lifting the level of the sea, we lift everyone on it. So we do what we can to lift the level of consciousness of mankind. And that influence then will have its influence. First of all, when it's done that way, when it's done via the field, instead of cause and effect, there's no way you can resist it. You can't resist the energy of context. You can easily resist the energy of content. Force, you can counter force. But the energy of a field, you cannot counteract. You cannot counteract the effect of gravity. All right, so gravity accomplishes only by virtue of that which it is. It just is what it is. And out of the fact that gravity is what it is, all things on Earth are affected. That's how I feel that people contribute. The more aligned you are with spiritual reality and integrity and truth and the universal love, the more profoundly you're affecting the world without having to do anything. Of course, good works, there's nothing wrong with good works. I'm not saying that, but in and of itself, that which you are and have become is what is influencing the world. The willingness to surrender how you see things then begins to transform how you see and experience life. Instead of being angry and condemning, you see that people cannot help being the way they are. So we're saying, here's these teenagers throwing rocks at each other and provoking the police into attacking them. And you begin to see they can't help themselves. And so as you really go into great depth, you begin to discern the basic innocence of human consciousness. That consciousness itself is like the hardware of a computer and the ego is like the software. The consciousness itself is unable to tell truth from falsehood. It cannot tell whether it's being programmed like the Nazis did with the uh, Nazi youth into falsehood or whether it's truth. So then we understand why Christ and Buddha said, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
the hardware of the computer is unaltered by the software. The consciousness of the youth is innocent. So those kids who shoot Americans, let's say, for Allah, then are looked at with compassion. You can see that they have been abused. So you see the spiritual abuse of the ignorant. And because of the innocence of human consciousness, its inability to discern truth from falsehood, mankind has led down the led down the path of falsehood. If you look at the History Channel, you know, the history of the Nazi movement in the 30s, etc. And you see the young people in Germany, patriotic, uh, it's like going to Boy Scout camp. They're around the campfire singing songs and hiking and uh, doing all this for their country, for their fatherland, for the Fuhrer. You say, how could they have believed anything other than that? If I'd been there, I would have been doing the same thing. You see, the innocence. So we begin to see the basic innocence of human consciousness, and now it allows us to forgive everyone. You see that everybody's being run by the programs with which they've been programmed. I mean, what else could they think? People believe the media because television comes across so fast, they've already believed it before they've had a chance to even examine or question it. So the mind gets programmed. And so you see, on the one hand, the ego survives by juicing negativity. On the other hand, it can't help but do that. It can't help but be that which it is. And without the power of spiritual truth, frankly, it's unable to transcend itself. The value of spiritual truth is that without it, nobody would transcend the ego. It's because of the great avatars, it's because of the great power of spiritual truth and those who have realized the reality that underlies the, and is the source of their own existence, that creates the power of the field, and the power of the field is where people derive the inspiration to then transcend the limitations that they find themselves at. When we understand then that basically human consciousness is innocent, it doesn't know truth from falsehood. So the reason I had to write the book Power versus Force is because it staggered me and I realized man has never had a chance to know truth from falsehood. The best man has been able to do is to follow the intellect and end up at a consciousness level of 460, which leads you stuck right in the middle of the mind and its dualities, and therefore war and hatred and all are destined to go on and on and on because without spiritual energy and truth to transcend it, the mind is hopelessly caught in its own web. And it gets paid off for getting, so as it goes round and round and round and ruminates, it gets a payoff, therefore it's self-propagating. So the ego unaided without external spiritual truth will forever go round and round chasing its own tail. So each person, as they do their own, what they think is personal spiritual work, is actually influencing the entire field. So the prevailing level of consciousness of mankind then progresses as a consequence of the collective spiritual effort of all of us. So every choice, every spiritual decision we make reverberates around the universe. So it says in scripture, not one hair of your head goes uncounted, and we discover with kinesiology that that is a fact. Anything anybody has ever done, thought, felt, every decision that's ever been made, 
is recorded forever in the field of consciousness. So people who say they don't believe in karma uh, can do so as a belief system, but they would still have to explain how is it that all phenomena that have ever occurred throughout all of history are recorded forever. How do you explain that every entity that gets born on this planet already has a calibrated level of consciousness? Therefore, they did not arise out of nothingness, but out of somethingness. And what is that somethingness out of which we all arise and to which we all return? So, <laughs> that takes us out of the limitation of the time frame of the present. And we begin to see and experience life in a greater dimension. And the spiritual realities that arise out of contemplating such things then sort of encourage our investigation into spiritual truth, which is the purpose of this kind of work. I wanted to first present the whole panorama of consciousness, its evolution, its quality, its nature, how it's been approached from science, reason, logic, philosophy, ethics, theology, and religion. How it uh, has evolved in mankind, how it manifests itself, and the part that it plays in everyday life. Force, then, requires energy and it exhausts people. So people can only exert force to a certain point, and then they begin to collapse. Power, on the other hand, does not exhaust itself. In fact, the more it's used, the more powerful it seems to be, for instance. If we experiment with forgiving people and being willing to love and love unconditionally, we find that that capacity grows. In the beginning, it may seem difficult to love that which seems unlovable. But if we dedicate that to that way of being in the world, if we dedicate ourselves to being that way in the world, then we find that it's easier and easier. We find that with force, the more you give away, the less you have. But with power, the more you give, the more you have. So, the more loving a person is, the more loving their world becomes. So we begin to experience the world of our own creation, you might say. Some people say, you go to New York City, they're all so cold and horrible there. I hate New York City and they're, they're all mean. And, and another person goes to New York City and says, my goodness, it was the most wonderful people. All the waitresses were neat and the cab drivers were, it's a, just an incredible place. Well, it's because in the presence of love, we, you know, precipitate the emergence of love in other people. And when we're not loving, we tend to bring forth the negative side of their natures. So all we're experiencing then is the kind of a world that we're precipitating by a virtue of what we ourselves have become. The contrast between power and force is given dramatically by a historical example of the British Empire vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Well, Mahatma Gandhi, as you know, was an ascetic, Hindu ascetic, and if you calibrate Gandhi, he's over 700. At the time that he confronted the British Empire, the British Empire was the greatest force the world had ever seen. It ruled uh, one quarter of the world, a third of the planet, and uh, the seas. 
So it was the greatest force the world had ever seen, the British Empire. And when I grew up, the British Empire was still the great British Empire, upon which the sun never set. Against that stood a little 90-pound uh, Hindu, Indian, skin and bones that stood up to the British Empire, stood up to the lion. So here's this 90-pound 90 90-pound 90 ascetic who can then confronts the great lion that ruled one-third of the planet. The interesting thing is that Mahatma Gandhi, by doing nothing, in fact, just saying he's going to stop eating, and if they didn't like it, he'd just starve to death, threw the world into a panic. And uh, at 700, Gandhi stood there. Well, 700 is, of course, enormous power, extremely rare on the planet, and faced off the British Empire, which in its pridefulness and self-interest calibrated at 190. And without firing one single shot, defeated the entire British Empire and took it apart <laughs> and brought the end of colonialism, which was followed by other nations then who also, one after another, gave up their colonialism. So it was not only the British Empire, but colonialism per se that he defeated. And self-rule became the dominant political system in the world today. So what Gandhi really represents then just like AA, the 12-step movements, uh, uh, all spiritual uh, groups around the world, is they demonstrate the influence of power. Power doesn't cause things. You know, force can be said to cause things within the Newtonian paradigm. Uh, power influences things. Now, you know that a quirk is going to rise depending on the density of the medium that it finds itself. So by prayer, by spiritual evolution, what happens then is that mankind creates a very powerful field, this field of spiritual reality, which then begins to lift and affect all of mankind. It affects the whole paradigm of reality and values. So as we mentioned before, integrity is now becoming a predominant value in our society. It's being talked about constantly in the media. So we have a whole new value system. Now that was not brought about by the mechanism of force. Nobody forced the, the news or the media to begin valuing integrity. But integrity as a social value, I'm speaking, not as a spiritual value, but as a social value. So we all live by our own principles. So spiritual then, growth then, means what principles do we live by? And as we grow and mature, we choose different principles. You know, some people live by the principle of always be right, never give the sucker a break. People come out and state what their principles are. Sometimes they seem quite outlandish, but <laughs> you could say they're integrous to the degree that they live by them. To the degree that they live by them, they are living by what they're committed to. So I respect what people say they're committed to, and I think to the degree they live by that, then they're being virtuous by their own definition. So calibrated level of consciousness to some degree then reflects the degree to which we live by our own stated spiritual choice. You might say karma or spiritual destiny, um, calibrated level of consciousness then is the consequence of spiritual freedom of choice. 
So we have freedom of choice at every moment, but this freedom of choice is, seems to be obscure. We seem to be run by programs, and one reason that we try to transcend the ego is because we don't want to be at the effect of the ego. We would like the mind to stop long enough for us to deliberate and make a choice. And so often we do a thing quickly and we regret it later. And you sort of get a resentment. Gee, I didn't really have a moment to really think about that. Our spiritual choices then tend to determine which way we choose when the moment arises. If it wasn't for the silence of consciousness, you would not be able to know what you're thinking. It's because of the silence of the forest that you can hear sound. It's because the mind is silent you can hear or see or picture what you're thinking. Therefore, the content of the mind must be going on in the space of no mind, which is a classical term, meaning thoughtless, formless consciousness upon which thoughts reflect themselves. So we withdraw our investment and preoccupation and identification with the content of thinking and begin to see that we're the space in which thinking can occur. So the value of meditation then is it focuses us so that we withdraw our investment and identification with the content of thought to the space in which the thought is occurring. And we begin to see that there is a witness to the thinking, there is an awareness to the witness, and that there's a substrate that underlies all of it that is beyond time, beyond dimension, and that it is independent of personal identification. And the identification then with consciousness itself lifts us out of the identification of our reality as either the body or the mind or the thoughts or the feelings and takes us to a greater dimension. As we move into that greater dimension then, we confirm the spiritual reality which underlies our existence. People become involved in spiritual work on a practical level. They want to know, how can I forgive my enemies when I hate them so much after all they've done to me? How can I feel hope when I'm really depressed? How can I uh, get rid of fear when I'm scared all the time? So it starts out on a very practical, many people start out on a very practical, nitty-gritty level. Other people start out from a different level. They start out through inspiration. They will hear an inspirational speaker and get uplifted. So one can start from curiosity, one can start from sort of a spontaneous evolution of within one's own consciousness. I think spiritually evolved people inspire others outside of their awareness. Because they influence the field, people that would not ordinarily not be interested in spirituality suddenly become curious. Not through any inner prompting, but as a consequence of the field. So if you're around people who are more spiritually evolved, one finds one's own interest in it spontaneously becoming more intense, not through any deliberate decision-making, but just because it's more interesting, the same as if you're around people that are into sports, you tend to listen to it more and be more interested in it. 
We hear all the time clinically, you know, people have some kind of disaster in their life, you know, uh, and we hear it all the time about an illness or drugs or alcohol or criminality or grief or loss. And what can they do about it? Um, the willingness to surrender life to God, of course, is one of the most profound spiritual tools. So the people ask, what spiritual tools are the most powerful? I would say humility, the willingness to surrender life, to let go on to control it, to let go on to change it. The willingness to surrender how you see things to God, then, or to some higher spiritual principle, because God is not a reality, it's just a word to most people, a hoped-for reality, but not an experiential reality to most people until they become more spiritually advanced and begin to experience the presence of the field itself and intuit its enormous power. And then they reverence God because they respect the infinite power that they begin to intuit. So what we can do on a practical level then is become the, more, the best person we can become. I'd say to become kind towards all of life in all of its expressions no matter what. And that includes oneself, to be willing to forgive oneself, to see the limitation of human consciousness. I always feel that the more educated you are about the quality of consciousness, the nature of consciousness, the easier it is to follow spiritual principles. If you understand that human consciousness is intrinsically innocent and cannot control that which it's programmed by because it can't tell truth from falsehood, you begin to feel compassion automatically. Oftentimes, the harder one tries to pursue a spiritual path, the more they can feel like they are getting nowhere, continually pulled down by the cares of this world, or the feeling of desolation and abandonment by the divine. In this important volume, we've included several segments where David discusses these obstacles to spiritual growth, so that you can identify them, overcome or avoid them, and get back on the spiritual path. David begins by discussing how following false spiritual teachers who promise to unveil unknown spiritual secrets can be one of the greatest obstacles to true spiritual wisdom. There's a great deal of spiritual fiction out there. In fact, the best-selling spiritual books are all fiction. The Da Vinci Code, all those kinds of things. All kinds of psychics who get you all kinds of stories about the end of the world and the end of this universe and, I mean, you know, the hidden code of God hidden in your genes and hidden in the springs of your matches, etc. That which is spiritual truth is not invisible, nor is it encoded. It's starkly wide open. There would be no point to hide the secrets. What kind of secrets are you talking about? There's no secrets to hide. Spiritual truth is transparent. That which is veiled, mysterious, cloaked, you have to pay money. Mystical secret of the ancients. 
Give me $500, I will whisper the secret of life into your ears. And then you say this mantra at the same time. Boom, boom, boomy, boom, 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 boomy, boom. So you can see the profit motive. Spiritual truth has nothing to gain by its promulgation. It doesn't even care if you agree with it or not. Anybody can repudiate anything I say, and it's certainly their option. I have no quarrel with it. There's no qualifications. You don't have to be or prove anything. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to sign anything. You don't have to justify. You don't have to prove that you have any right or claims. A true spiritual teacher frees you, and so-called Charlotte try to bind you. Try to own you, control you, tell you what to do, etc. Spiritual truth is freely given. Freely given. Freely given. It's not provisional to conditions or who believes it or who doesn't believe it, or whether it's provable or not provable because what the world considers provable is not provable. It's not aligned with any particular thing. It doesn't have to exist here or there or be on a mountaintop, or you can only have a holy order on top of a mountain at 6,000 feet or something. Next, David talks about religionism and the dangers of a narcissistic ego. That's a dead stop. A lot of people think they're religious, and really what they're practicing is religionism. That main world religion that we are having a problem with now is you deify the religion rather than God. So the printed word or the teaching of a teacher now transcends divinity itself. So you'll find they're not worshiping God, and you'll find that people worship the religion rather than the truth of the religion. So in the name of the religion, you have the Inquisition, let's say. So religionism then eventually becomes its own opposite. So we know if you add ISM to the end of any area of knowledge, that it automatically drops to 190. Now it becomes positionalized with narcissistic gain. So you have to impose environmentalism, you have to impose liberalism, you have to impose conservatism. The minute it's an ism or militarism or anti-militarism, becomes a crusade and everybody wants to get on the bandwagon and get on TV and hold up a placard. The vanity of the narcissistic ego is unlimited. Through education, you get what the limitations of the ego are. And that gives you a certain degree of humility to begin with. You realize that you're lucky to have any idea what reality is in the first place because the ego is so intent on displacing reality with its own perceptions and projecting them onto the world that it's almost impossible to see the reality of the world because so much is production. The media, first of all, by what they select have already prejudiced you. They're saying, well, this is important. That's why it's on the evening news. And things that are profoundly more important are never on the evening news. Only the trivial is on the evening news. The profoundly important would not be of interest to people. <laughs> How did the great shakers and makers of this world arrive at their conclusions and execute them? That would be worth looking at, wouldn't it? Instead of the latest titillation and silly amusements, you see. How do the great people think, and why do they arrive at the conclusions they arrive at? And how can that be contextualized so as we can understand it? How to understand the world that we see would be far more interesting, but many people are not that interested in looking past appearance. I'm always interested in what is the essence of a thing. I know what the appearance is. I can flick on the news and see it for myself. But what is the essence of that? Is it naivete? Naivete very often. Naivete. 
Spiritual humility means an attitude that I of myself, my mind in and of itself, is not really capable of discerning the ultimate truth. That's why the great avatars came to reveal to us that which is unknowable. And to be grateful, to be grateful all the time is an attitude of humility. To be grateful that you're interested in spirituality. It's, I'm grateful that I'm even interested in the subject. I'm grateful that I've come across good teachers along the way. I'm grateful for the life experiences that have come about that have revealed truths to me. So humility is understand it's a positionality. It's where you stand back and you're sort of saying, I have myself and unable to fully comprehend it. And you're constantly asking for revelation is what you're asking for. So your position with God is what I say is like a mudra. It's like your position with God is like yin. It's which you stand back and you say, to thee, O Lord, I surrender and I ask for your will in the matter. And then you surrender to what appears as to be most aligned with divinity. All negative feelings are linked with each other. You want something because you feel unfulfilled. So if something gets in the way, now you get angry. Now you get frustrated and you realize that if you get it now, you're going to be prideful. But if you're prideful in your ownership, now you have to fear that somebody will take it away from you or that you won't get it. And then you envy other people that do have it and you get puffed up if you do have it. So one thing leads to another. Say so your anger is that somebody is interfering and they're all based on the same delusion. And the delusion is that the source of happiness is something outside of yourself. When I get that title, when I get that car, when I get that job, when I get that income, when I get that, there's always a get. When I get that relationship, when I get that recognition, when I get on the TV program, when I get on the nightly news, I'll be somebody, you see? It's always a gettingness. So if anything stands in your way, that gettingness, now you hate it and you're angry at it and you want to destroy it. So when you see that one thing leads to another, then if you don't achieve it, you feel guilt, self-blame, you feel worthless. Now you feel depressed. All the negative feelings are based on the assumption that what you need is outside of yourself. You see yourself as incomplete. And once I'm famous, once I'm educated, once I'm older, or once I'm richer, or once I'm, no matter what you say, once I have that title, then I'll be happy. It always puts fulfillment off in the future. So you're always coming from incomplete to incomplete because you're incomplete, but then when you get what you want, there's always one better. I knew many super rich people back east. I was with them in certain kinds of relationships. And they always had a saying, no matter how big your yacht is, a bigger one will dock next to you. <laughs> and I saw that with some of the great famous yachts. A friend of mine was a designer of the World Cup winning yacht. And other friends of mine who owned world famous yachts. And sure enough, they say, you know, if we tie up there, you watch. And sure enough, <laughs> you tie up there and some Maharaja from Pupa would load up in a 400-foot yacht with eight decks and 32 servants. And so that, no matter how rich you are, so there's always somebody richer, you know. So, so it's an endless race, and it was very comical to see it. And, of course, people who are really quite wealthy and have been for some time live very simple lives for public events, parties, or something. But I knew lots of multimillionaires and very often they would inherit a big estate, you know, 40 acres with a huge castle of a house and all these buildings and all. And you, when you go to visit them, they actually lived in one of the servants' houses. There's a little house out there, that's where they lived. 
some of the richest people in America. I used to live next door to one. He had a third story on his house, you know. And uh, I said, what's up there? He says, I don't know. I've never been up there. <laughs> and the rich people, they would usually put two or three rooms in this big giant house, the family estate, you know. And there would be a kitchen and a sitting room and a bedroom. And that's where they lived all their time, 99% of the time. Tip when their great niece was here and having a birthday party, and then they would have a party on the lawn. But they lived all their time in just a little corner of the house. What are you going to do on the third floor with 5,000 feet of magnificent furniture and you? You and 5,000 feet of antique, beautiful furniture with a wonderful view. Now, once you've looked out the window and seen the view, now what are you going to do? Say you go back downstairs to the kitchen and watch the TV, put your feet up and put some wood in the stove the same as the servants do. It's comical. David cautions his listeners about getting involved with the paranormal and other realms beyond our physical world. Things like psychics, pendulums, and the things he describes as coming from a very dark place, including cults and false teachers. Here, David explains what these traps are and how we can grow spiritually without them and the negativity they bring with them. Well, those are the sideshows, the so-called astral circus, the New Age astral circus. And I teach against them. Why? Because straight and narrow is the path. Or you can spend quite a few lifetimes wandering through the fantasy world of various psychics and channelers and various people like this, and tarot cards and tea leaf readings and various things like this. They all end up at a dead end. They all end up at a dead end. Some entity on the other side tells you about a whole other dimension. The next thing you know, you're all involved in that dimension. And a lot of them have gods with a weird name and various hierarchies. And a lot of times for additional money, they will move you up to a different higher level of anarchy. For another 5,000, they'll introduce you to master so-and-so on a different level, who will now give you some magical powers. And the whole thing is seductive. What's being seduced is the innocent curiosity of the child. There are things on the internet that will tell you. For $5,000, they'll raise your level of consciousness 100 points an hour. For 50000 they guarantee you'll be in light within six weeks. Actually, they're on the internet, and I suppose people actually send the money because they're still there. So, you see, when you first realize that there's something other than just logic in the phenomenal world, the child in you becomes, oh, wow, so the paranormal. We're not saying the paranormal doesn't exist. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But the scripture says not to go there, not to go there. Why? Because you're dealing in other realms and you have no education or sophistication or awareness of the rules and the laws of those realms. The angels fear to tread there. Why would you? Because why? It's morbid curiosity. You want to know how awful awful is? You want to check out hell? You're not going to check out hell without getting burned. I advise people, don't go there. Don't be tempted by the drama of it. If you're going to climb the highest mountain, make note of the fact that 176 people have died there already doing it. You can do the thing. You can go out of body and visit other dimensions. You are not equipped to go there. You don't even know anything about who's who there and you're an innocent victim the minute you walk there. So tarot cards, Ouija boards, psychic readings, throwing ruins are all forms of magic. So the child in us is entranced by the magic. There are people that do it. 
And if they do it, they do it. I tell people, don't try to calibrate low energies. Don't get attracted to that which is evil and demonic and start trying to calibrate it because your pendulum is going to get hit by that energy. And one of your energy fields and chakras can get reversed, by the way. So don't play around with it. A pendulum is not a game. And same with any kind of divination. It shouldn't be done for sport. Many people play with divination and we never hear from them again. I don't recommend them to people because they always have to have some curiosity that is so hypothetical, having nothing to do with it, anything could possibly be your own spiritual destination. And you're just asking it out of idle curiosity. But often you're playing with very negative energies when you're doing that. You're trying to flirt with the negative and think you won't get burned. That's not going to happen. And I know a lot of people who did with pendulums started checking out other dimensions. And they really blew out and even became psychotic. So I don't recommend it. <laughs> all these psychics over time turn out to be false. There's one locally that does all the things that are so typical of a cult. Tells people how to live, gets them bonded to him, tells them about their sex life. You have to turn all your money over to him. And one thing about these cult leaders you'll notice is that sex is forbidden to all the followers, but not to the cult leader. <laughs> well, of course, is entitled to go to bed with anybody who wishes him. And then cite some entity on the other side. So the fallacy of the whole thing is so transparent to a sophisticated person. But the person who gets entrapped into it, it is their child, and their child gets brainwashed by all this mumbo-jumbo. And of course, Jonestown and all those things you see. How could a thousand sane adults commit suicide all at the same time? How could that be? So cults, you see, are dangerous, are they not? Because they have the capacity to brainwash people. And I say, a teacher should free you and not bind you. You should not be bound by the teacher. On the contrary, you should be freed by the teacher. You owe nothing to a teacher whatsoever, except to be polite and listen if you wish. You're not in bondage. You don't owe. You're not obligated. A true teacher doesn't try to control you or get you to turn over your financial assets to them at all. And another thing they do is theatrics. Theatrics put on great displays with fancy robes and entourages and great wondrous buildings and all to impress you with their importance. The other thing they try to impress you with is the number of followers. They have 10 million followers in India or something like that. And I calibrate the guy, he comes out at 140. <laughs> 140, he's got 10 million followers and he calibrates at 140. So, you know, like lemmings being led over the cliff by the Pied Piper. Adolf Hitler had 40 million adoring followers too. He calibrated at 90 and destroyed Germany and most of Europe. So the fact that somebody has lots of followers doesn't mean a single thing whatsoever. Plus, some teachers start out integrous, reach a high place, and then fall. And that is another innocence that the innocent person doesn't realize, that he was calibrated 570, but he's now at 190. Yes, he's now at 190. So I always teach students, sooner or later, you're going to become a teacher, sooner or later. And each of the levels of consciousness has its downside and its traps. And once you become a teacher, there's the seduction of being glamorized, of being idolized, of people saying that they love you very much, etc. Of sexual seduction, of the attraction of money, fame, power over many people. And therefore, many are the gurus who began to ascend the path and then crashed. Half a dozen of them were even on TV or the internet. They were at a high place at one point. So 
I believe a teacher should teach the students that when you reach a certain level of consciousness, these are the temptations that you will be presented with. Don't forget the Buddha was beset by demons, beset by demons. And these demons, people think, oh, they're going to come in the form of evil demons. Oh, no, they're not going to come in the form of evil demons. They're going to come in the form of seduction, sweet, adoringness. Oh, my God, they're going to come. Oh, 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 master, master. Oh, master, master. Oh, master. So that's the dramatization. I'm not saying that there isn't a lot to it. Scripture says... It doesn't invalidate it, it says don't go there. You can have a couple of readings that are right on and you're now entranced by that. And then suddenly the readings go off and some of the readings suddenly go wrong. So all those things are only tentative and they're only transitory, spiritual fiction, because then the reality seems mundane and pedestrian as compared to the magical wonderment of tarot card reading or something. I think it's the wrong direction altogether. And here, the error is to fall for the seduction that it is a quality or a power of your personal self, which it is not. The phenomena happen of their own. There is no personal self calling them. So we have witnessed miracles many times. And the trap is to think that you are the one that brought about the miracle. No such things. There is no person doing any miracles. So any so-called miracle worker is by definition. There is no person doing miracles. The potentiation occurs when a certain energy field arises. It only happens when all the conditions are appropriate, including karmic conditions. When the apple is ready, it falls from the tree. Now, the apple doesn't cause itself to fall from the tree. There's the field of gravity. So within the spiritual aura of an advanced teacher, phenomena that are due to occur karmically and for many reasons may be facilitated but there's no personal self doing a cause and effect miraculous cure you witness them happen so you are the witness of them and one is aware yes the energy field could exhilarate a propensity but that karmic propensity is within the person themselves and all one did was facilitate it a person who's very sick and disabled, etc., will sit down next to you and then you can feel this energy move over in their domain and then they'll get up and walk away. Well, you're aware it wasn't you that did it, it was the energy, the Kundalini energy. So I was saved by the inner honesty which was already present from previous spiritual work. And you just witnessed the phenomena. I mean, if I described some of the things, you wouldn't believe them, but they were just, they were autonomous. It was the unfolding of potentiality emerging as a consequence of the energy field surrounding it, which potentialized it. So what's happening is they spiritually advance, the Kundalini energy rises. Now the Kundalini energy, by virtue of its own nature, is what is transformative and accomplishing the miraculous, not the personal you. So everybody needs a teacher to warn them of this. Miracle workers are a dime a dozen, you see, because when it came on, it was a phenomena. Then the personal self took credit for that. Then the ego got exaggerated. Now they don't have that miraculous power anymore, but they don't want the world to know that. So they've learned how to fake it. And one of the most famous gurus of recent times in India, the phenomena occurred spontaneously in the beginning. Then he claimed credit for it. Then he brought great throngs. Then he brought great money. 
Then he began to learn how to fake that which had before had been autonomous. That's a very subtle thing. It's happened to more than one guru. Now we're going to talk about spiritual truth. There are many false teachers in the world, and I was myself quite amazed when I discovered how many there were. I mean, lots. Lots who are quite world famous also. Lots. So, because you're putting your eternal soul in the hands of a teacher, you better know who that teacher is. I mean, I wouldn't be so careless. You really, you're talking about your eternal soul, the karmic perpetuation throughout all of time. And you're going to put this in some flashy ad, go and get your aura read by Master So-and-so on the other side. Of course, you have to turn over all your property to Amazon. <laughs> you get a reading from Master So-and-so through him on the other side, it only costs you 5000 for your granddaughter. <laughs> except you don't have a granddaughter. So I want everybody that I'm a teacher of, I want to be responsible to tell them the downside. You know, apparently these gurus fell because their instructors did not instruct them of the downside. So in our lectures, we constantly go over what is the downside of each level of consciousness? Where is the trap? People say, oh, I'm beyond that. You're not beyond that at all. From 850 and up, it's very difficult. And the Buddha acknowledged it. He said, I felt like my bones were being broken because the demons are looking for any weakness in your psyche. There are characteristics of spiritual truth that will carry you through if you know them. You don't need a list of who they are and what they calibrate. That's very handy. But if you know certain basics, it's more important to understand the basics. Truth is true at all times and places, independent of the culture, personalities, or circumstances. Truth is always true, no matter what. So if we calibrate the Shark Cathedral, it is, that calibration is so, no matter what. Truth is true at all times and places, non-exclusionary. It's all-inclusive, non-secretive, and non-sectarian. Nobody owns truth. A group like this, one of the biggest traps coming up is unconditional uh, love and love. You reach the energy of love, you become quite attractive to other people. And they will interpret it as personal love. People will fall in love with you all over the place. There was a period of time when I got propositioned a couple times a day. <laughs> and I didn't have a teacher to warn me, but I just... <laughs> I mean, I knew the integrity of it was being tested. So I intuited it, but many fall for that one there. And then glamour. We weren't allowed to use the title guru in the book. Every time we'd ask, it said no. The word has come to mean something different than what it originally meant because it was being exploited. Wealth, fame, having lots of followers, world fame. So all those things are temptations to the spiritual ego to consider yourself important. And you see how the spiritual ego throws you right back into a personal self right away. So the minute you think it's you, you just lost it. <laughs> so spiritual pride, vanity, and possessions. So we were talking about spiritual truth and teachers. Truth is true everywhere. It excludes no one. Available, open to all. There are no secrets to be revealed, hidden, sold, or magical formulas or mysteries. That which I spoke is the truth, O oh Lord. That is the truth. You need to see an ancient secret being peddled, it's always for a price. You know that you're being had by a spiritual con man. <laughs> truth to be truth is 
truth all the time, foreverness, and how could it be the exclusive property of someone? Available, it's open to all. An integrity of purpose, there's nothing to gain or lose. Non-sectarian, truth is not the exposition of a limitation. Independent of opinion, truth is non-linear, therefore not subject to limitations of intellect or form. Independent of opinion. Devoid of positionality, truth is not anti-anything. Why is that? Because truth has no opposite. You might say the opposite of truth is absence. You understand what I'm saying? The falsehood has no reality. There's truth and then there's the absence of truth. The absence of truth. So there's only truth and the absence. And we call the absence of truth falsehood. Just like light and darkness, see? Light and darkness. Light is either present or not present. No requirements or demands. No required memberships, dues, fees, regulations, oaths, rules, conditions, and we don't circularize everybody asking for donations. <laughs> Non-controlling. Spiritual purity has no interest in the personal lives of the aspirants, in their clothing, their dress, their style, their sex life, their economics, their family patterns, their lifestyle, or their dietary habits. Free of force or intimidation, you know, people are threatened. There are spiritual groups where you belong to the sect, and if you try to get out of it, there are recriminations, sometimes quite severe. No force or intimidation. There's no brainwashing, adulation of the leaders, no training rituals. Watch out for training rituals. That's called the brainwash, by which you're indoctrinated. Indoctrination. Anything called the training, watch out. If you know the truth, what do you need to be trained? Non-binding, do not take any oaths, do not pledge anything. And if I fail to break these vows, may such and such happen to me. Never take such a vow. Freedom, free to come and go without persuasion, coercion, intimidation, or consequences. There's no hierarchy. Instead, there is voluntary fulfillment of practical necessities and duties. Everybody we work with does what they do because that's what needs to be done. <laughs> Commonality. Recognition, let's say if you do have a leader or people who, that you honor, it's because of what one has become rather than as a result of some title or trapping. The great Baham, you know? You know, Baham because he's the great Baham, you know? What do you mean he's the great Baham? Who said he's the great Baham? Well, he said he's the great Baham. Oh. <laughs> you recognize truth when you see it. And so. I respect all that exists because of the essence of that which they are, which I sense right away. Therefore, you give respect to the little beetle walking along, you give respect to the animals, you give respect to the polar bear, you give respect to all that exists by virtue of that which it is. The essence of the thing is that which it is. And what does a thing mean? What a thing means is what it is. What it is is what it means. <laughs> That's hard to see but then you get the essence of it. What this thing means is what it is. You don't have to add adjectives, adverbs, languaging. It speaks for itself by virtue of its existence. So a teacher should be, will speak for himself because of the reality of that which it is. That which it is, not that which is spoken about it. Non-materialistic, neediness of worldly wealth and all this stuff that goes with it. Inspirational, truth 
avoids glamorization, seduction, and theatrics. Theatrics. The glamorization of the theatrics. And I've been to so-called spiritual events that were like a Broadway production. 3D videos and bombing music and orchestras and flashing lights and holy God, you know. Am I being programmed or I mean, what is this? There's no need for worldly wealth, you see? See, wealth is the difference between your desires and that which you have. So when you don't want anything, now wantingness is one of the greatest things if you want to transcend quickly. To let go of wantingness, letting wanting this, wanting admiration, wanting possessions, wanting control, wanting all the wantingness. When you finally let go of all the wantingness, you've got more than what you need. You got more than what you need. When I first came to Sedona, I lived in a rented place. I didn't have a bed, so I went and bought a cot at the dime store. I bought some blankets at the Goodwill. I got a nice wooden box and put a candlestick next to it. And I was complete. What, what more do you need? <laughs> and uh, I would put an apple in the refrigerator and save that for dinner. <laughs> so what more do you need? Life space, you got nutrition when you want it. And of course, God will provide for you if you need. So I tested that out too. So I walked out with no money or no food and wandered around Sedona. I got invited for breakfast. I got invited for lunch and invited for dinner. <laughs> He would just say, do you have burgers yet? No, I'm going over to so-and-so. I said, I haven't got any money, it's, not, it's on the house. So anyway, what you need is provided. Therefore, if you need nothing, you already have abundance. You understand? I already have abundance. Now, the integrity of the teacher speaks for itself. So some people can intuit it, and other people, of course, cannot, I suppose. Everything I say, I am constantly aware all the time in an unspoken, constant awareness that I'm responsible and answerable to Almighty God for everything that I say every second. And as a teacher, that responsibility is even more exaggerated. And I'm very, very aware of everything I say. And therefore, very often, like when we give a lecture, I'll sort of intuit a thing as being so, but I want to make sure it's so. So I'll do kinesiology, and I said, let's check this out and see if it's so, because I do not want to teach any error. <laughs> and I got a kick, I once to well get a well crazy email. Every author gets crazy mail, you know. And they accuse you of being a fraud in some way. And I'll say, having taught the whole world how to discern truth from falsehood in a matter of seconds, I'm very unlikely to try to present falsehood. <laughs> having already told them how to discern the difference between truth and falsehood, I'm not very likely going to present falsehood with tens of thousands of people out there doing that. So spiritual reality is educational, is self-supporting. We don't ask anything of anybody except the cost of putting something on. Freestanding, it's complete without dependence on historical. I don't have to say I'm the 13th humpy of the 6th humpy of Wapa. <laughs> well, I like Buddhism, a lot of those things get into that. He's the 6th descendant of the 7th matriarch of the 7th patriarch of the 6th cycle of... <laughs> And they get into like numerology, they're always counting here, the 12 ways to God, the 12 ways to enlightenment, the 14 ways to purity and truth. <laughs> I only got there with one. Now, how did you get there with the other 12? Another thing is the way to God is void of induced unnatural states of consciousness, which is like parapsychological states. Abnormal breathing patterns, abnormal positions, postures, 
ways to try and force the Kundalini. When the Kundalini is ready to rise, it does so automatically because of its own truth. As you become loving, the Kundalini energy rises. It's not going to rise because you cross your legs and sit in front of a picture of the Buddha and go, uh, and burn incense and do all kinds of mystical incantations and crap. <laughs> Just try to be kindly and loving and, <laughs> and, and step over the beetle and you can save yourself all that stuff and you save all kinds of money on incense and mystical music and gongs. <laughs> well, you see the theatricalization of it all. You get these spiritual magazines from whereabouts in the country. And on the front, there's always a beautiful blonde. She's always <laughs> flowing hair. <laughs> I mean, you want to do it with me, or what is it, you know? <laughs> Sex with a lure pathway to God, or what is it? You never get a middle-aged looking guy who's a little chunky. He looks like a Chuck Berry. You ever see a chunky guy? You know? <laughs> on the front page of one of these magazines. Not a one. Where's all the regular guys, huh? Hey, what regular guys? Let's have it with the guys. Hey. Oh golly. I thought for a while we were gonna get into heaven without long blonde hair and magical things and they always do a mystical yoga posture. You see what I'm saying? That's the glamorization of it. It's the theatricalization. So avoid unnatural things and especially trainings that are going to teach you mystical powers. Trainings that teach you mystical powers. All of them calibrate about 205. First of all, look at the seduction to the spiritual ego. Oh, I'm going to be special and I'm going to have superpowers. If you had superpowers, they wouldn't be selling them, would they? He's got superpowers, you're so rich and powerful and complete within yourself, what would you be selling it for? <laughs> You'd be selling it because you're needy. Needy of what? More power and wealth? Give me a break. <laughs> because people will always send me emails about some weird guru somewhere, Tasmania or someplace, Junky boo-boo who wants his material wealth and wants him to leave his wife and all. And I calibrate the guys about 180. Well, I look for something weird and offbeat and unverified. When one is growing and seeking, there may be others in one's life that may not understand their pursuit to grow even further spiritually. To conclude this session, David tells us how to respond in these kinds of situations. I believe people should use discretion. You don't have to tell people what you're doing and why you're doing it. And when I left the East, I didn't explain it to anybody. There's nothing they're going to understand about that. So there's probably only very few people that you're going to be able to confide in what you're really up to and what's really going on with your life. Everybody has a certain comprehension of an inner calling. And I find the best way you can describe it is I reached a satisfaction with a certain point in my life and a very strong inner calling said to me, Here's a whole different other area you need to develop and grow. And I had to follow that calling. So you can usually get by with saying you have an inner calling, you see? And of course, people will try to argue you back in the world because you're challenging their worldview, are you not? You're negating to some degree the value of their worldview. And so they may expect you to defend it. And I would not defend that. I would just say, look, that's my calling and that's the way it is. Well, what about the wife and the kids? And what about the business? And what about the family? 
I said, well, God will have to look after that. God is the creator of the universe. He's the savior of mankind. And God can just worry about it because I'm going to be busy doing something else. Well, he's lost his mind, they'll say. Well, when your mind goes silent, you have lost your mind. <laughs> they don't realize it's a compliment. I've been at it for 30 years. I finally did lose my mind. And they're saying, I think he's lost his mind. He's walked off. Look at the life I had back east. I had the life and... I can't tell you how ultimate it was. It was ultimate in ways that the world doesn't even know about. The most ultimate people don't even reveal to the world what they really are about a good deal of the time. Organizations they belong to don't even appear on the map. So you walk away from that world and you walk into a different world where genuineness, intrinsic inner genuineness is what counts. So when you say thank you to a waitress or to a clerk in the store, it has to be from a genuine appreciation. You see their beingness and their isness. And what you're saying is the truth. If you just do it as a superficial manipulation, it doesn't have the same effect. When you look and you see how harried the person is and how hard they're trying to keep up with it all, so you appreciate the humanness of people. So when you reflect back the genuine value of their humanness, what you're really reflecting back is the sacredness of their existence. You see, when you acknowledge people, you're reflecting back to them their inner worth, and their inner worth is infinite. The inner worth of every human being is infinite, is it not? Its potential is infinite. That which is created by God, you can't say that one creation of God is better than another. All are equally creatures of God. So this is the transformation you go through, and I'll say, when you walk through an alley and sidewalk, you see the little black beetle on his back flailing his legs around. And you try to walk by it. You can tell you're making spiritual progress when it bothers you. You have to back up, turn the little beetle on his feet, and then you walk away happy. At that point, you realize you're loving life and you're discerning the sacredness because his little life is just as sacred to him. He's scared blue, he's laying on his back, he can't get his legs under him. And so you're like sent by God to turn him over. You say, well, God, I'm turning over this little beetle, but I know you want me to. You know, you can joke around with God. I do all the time. It's your beetle, but, you know, there is a point, really, where you can't walk by the beetle without helping it. Then there is an even higher space, which is, can't really be described, but that is a different level of consciousness, in which the beetle's karma is the beetle's karma, and yours is yours. Anyway, you see, become a servant of God, and you see the intrinsic holiness of all of life and you try to preserve it as the best you can because that's how God reflects through you. In this volume, we move beyond specific spiritual obstacles to perhaps the greatest challenge that faces any spiritual seeker, the willingness to surrender everything, including the payoffs to the ego, to God. This sounds like it would be easy. After all, to surrender means to let go and to not have to do anything. What could be easier? In truth, the process of surrendering is one of the most difficult steps along the path to enlightenment because the tentacles of the ego, even among the most spiritually inclined, are deep and firmly entrenched. However, 
after listening to the various selections in this volume, you'll see why a commitment to this surrendering process is more than commensurate with the demands. The willingness to surrender the payoff of the ego then allows you to let everything go experientially as it arises. The willingness to let go of the payoff of grief, anger, resentment, hatred. So what do you surrender to God in the way of surrender? What does devotion mean? I love thee, O Lord, greater than. I love the glee I get out of my hatreds, my wickednesses, my shame, my guilt, my revenge. Either you love God or you love revenge. You can't have them both. You either love God or you love self-pity. So it's always merely a choice. Am I willing to surrender this for the love of God or not? To become enlightened, that power has to be powerful. You have to be willing to give up everything for God. Everything. Because at the last moment, before that ultimate experience reveals itself, or condition takes over, rather, you will be asked to surrender your life. The core of what you think is your life. The core of the ego, the self. The real you for the last umpteen lifetimes. You're going to lay that down for God. It's scary. Because you've let go all this pay off, you look at all this stuff, and now suddenly there's like an infinite presence that is like yourself, what you think is yourself, and this too one lays down, and there's a moment of terror, and you experience death, one and only death. You never experience it again, you'll never experience it before, and you'll never experience it again. But there is one death you live through. You don't know that you're going to live through it. The ego has the notion that it's going to be the same, only be enlightened. <laughs> I'll still be me, but I'll be an enlightened me. <laughs> no, you ain't going to be you. Not you. You're not going to be you. That's, that's it. See, it's my responsibility to prepare you for the last moment because everybody here is going to be headed for the last moment. You wouldn't be here at this lecture otherwise. Everybody's headed for the last moment. And unless you hear the truth, you won't know what to do. Therefore, karmically I'm laying down that I have spoken the truth. That last moment, you will get. Walk straight ahead no matter what. Die for God. And as you lay down your life, the agony of death arises. And it is agonizing, and you do die. And then, before you stand the splendor, <laughs> that what you thought was life was not life anyway. <laughs> but because it is so real, you see why you've guarded it all these lifetimes.
it's convincingly, convincingly real that it is your life, that it is the source of your life. The ego is very, very strong, or it wouldn't have survived all these lifetimes. At this last moment, it tells you, or you feel that it's the very source of your life that you're laying down. And at that point, I'm telling you, it is safe to surrender it. It is safe, but you have to have a knowingness that it's safe. You have to have heard it. You have to know it. You have to have it in your aura. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, it comes to you. Walk right through. The Zen saying to walk into fear no matter what got me through it. <laughs> no matter what means without limitation even to death itself, no matter what. And so I repeat the words of the Master who I followed at that moment, no matter what. All right, so as you surrender, as you're willing to let go, you'll see the ego hangs on because it's getting something out of it. Now, everybody's ego is going to resist this. <laughs> Expect it to. Let's hear it from the old ego. Hmm? <laughs> Uh, this hatred is justified. I should feel angry at this guy. I, you know what I mean? It's very clever convincing you that the juice it's getting is justified, good for America, if nothing else. <laughs> and they deserve it anyway. To give up self-pity, to give up anger, to give up resentment, to surrender them through forgiveness. So the power, of course, of the Course of Miracles is the willingness to forgive all and get out of the lower fields of consciousness. So, in the beginning, the ego identifies with form that's here. How does it know that? Because it registers it through recognition. You'll notice that there isn't any me that's thinking anyway. There is a watcher experience here. So in meditation or in contemplation, if you focus on the field, you'll notice that witnessing is happening of its own. There's no me deciding to be aware of all the people in this room. It's happening automatically. Every one of you here, it's happening automatically. Your awareness to everybody here, isn't that so? It's not because you're saying, oh, I choose to be aware of everybody in the room. It's happening by itself. So there's no point in taking credit for it. <laughs> you don't get credit for being aware of everything that's going on in the room because it's happening of its own. So the first thing you notice about consciousness is it's automatic. The light of consciousness is automatic. It expresses as the watcher, the experiencer, through awareness, the observer. You get to the source of that faculty, you'll see that's an impersonal faculty. There isn't any person you that decided to be consciously aware. Witnessing is happening of its own. So in meditation, you pull back from identifying with the content of meditation, I am this, I did that, and all that BS. That's all a fallacious story. And you realize that that which I am is the witness of all those thoughts, feelings, and that panorama. I call it a phantasmagoria. It's such a wonderful word. I love that word. Phantasmagoria. <laughs> My great aunt used to have something for us. It was really special for your birthday. So she called it a monster polypheme. <laughs> I said, what's that under there? I said, that's a monster polypheme. 
That would be like something like a whole croquet set or something, you know? Monster polypheme. So this whole phantasmagoria that goes through the mind, uh, you know, everybody who's meditated knows that. Memories, thoughts, fantasies, imaginations, little itty-bitty-boop, boppity-bop-bop music from the 1920s that you heard from the <laughs> all this garbage. So you realize that that what you are is the involuntary witness. You don't volunteer to be the witness. You are the witness. No point to take credit for it. No point to feel ashamed about it because it's automatic. Consciousness automatically is conscious because that's its nature and it's impersonal. That's part of your karmic inheritance is to be conscious. Consciousness then. So one begins to identify with the witness, the observer, then with consciousness, then one stops identifying the consciousness as personal and one even goes beyond the manifest and realizes the ultimate is beyond all form, the unmanifest, out of which consciousness arises. And that makes you a Buddha. So the willingness to surrender positionality out of humility to God means that one is then ready to accept the possibility that intrinsically men are innocent and that they're suffering from a profound ignorance and that the um, only way out of suffering then is to transcend that ignorance to spiritual truth. So then one becomes a student of spiritual truth in their personal life or even eventually in their professional life, you see. The relief of human suffering then is what medicine is about, psychiatry is about, it's why I went into psychoanalysis. Each of those things was to sharpen the capacity to, you know, assist in the relief of human suffering in its all of its forms, whether it's psychopharmacology or understanding unconscious conflicts. If you're dedicated to that endeavor, one eventually ends up with spiritual truth and spiritual programs because to many human dilemmas, there is no other answer. Just like there's no other answer to the death of a loved one except to surrender to God and the will of God in the knowingness that eventually spiritual truth will heal all pain. The way we transcend all of that, again, goes back to humility and the willingness to let go of the way we see things and allow a spiritual truth, which comes in of its own. People don't realize that when one becomes silent, out of that silence, all of a sudden arises a realization. We try to force an answer or force God to give us an answer with a demand. Many prayers are nothing but demands. We try to force God to respond to our demand, which is disguised as a prayer. <laughs> I prayed as such. No, you are trying to force God to give you a new Ford. When we actually surrender to God's will, suddenly we see it differently. And when we see it differently, we realize there is no loss. The source of the pain disappears. And when the source of the pain disappears, the source came out of ignorance and came out of the way we were seeing it. By constant surrender to God, all things resolve themselves. 
even very advanced and complicated, spiritually very difficult issues. The best way to handle a prayer for a Ford is to surrender your desire for a Ford. Why did you want the Ford? Because you think that happiness is something outside of yourself. If I have the new Ford, then I will feel successful and then I will feel happy. So all desires then have associated with them the unconscious belief system that they will bring us happiness. But that makes us very dependent on the external world. And so our happiness is always vulnerable and therefore we live in fear all the time because if the source of happiness is outside yourself, you're always in a weak and possibly victim position. If the source of happiness then is self-fulfillment within oneself, then nobody can take it away from you. And even you reach a point whether you physically live or die is really irrelevant. Many times you're like looking death in the face, and if you leave, you leave, and if you don't, you don't, and it's no big deal, frankly. When we get beset by a, a desire then, we've set ourselves up for suffering. And therefore, if we're willing to surrender everything to God, see, devotional non-duality means out of devotion to truth and to God, we're willing to surrender everything and anything, no matter what, even life itself, then it's resolved and something replaces it that is better than the new Ford would have been. It's the future that's creating your present. You think it's your past that's propelling your self from the past, that you're being pushed by your past. No, you're being sucked into your future, folks. <laughs> uh, you're being pulled by destiny because by an act of the will, you've already chosen your destiny, and now this is the unfolding of what is required to reach it, that's all. Therefore, there's no point to complain about it, unless you want to. <laughs> Do not feel guilty about complaining. <laughs> How does one transcend this ego? First of all, there, there is no such a thing as the ego. It's only the tendency of these energies to form a, a structure. There's only a tendency. They can be easily undone. There's two ways, meditation and contemplation, and prayer, of course, and devotion. Be one with the field. So if you are aware primarily of the field, see the obsessive-compulsive gets caught up in this thing here and drives you crazy. You know, he's got to know every little detail here, which is totally irrelevant, you know what I'm saying? Was your lunch a dollar thirty-two or a dollar thirty-seven? I don't know, who cares? <laughs> I tell the IRS it's two bucks, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I save all that bookkeeping. <laughs> I include the tip. Tip doesn't show up on the receipt. So if I receive the receipt, it won't do me any good because it doesn't include the tip. The tip was something, see? Anyway, they live here and drive you crazy with all their focus on detail. All right, so the I, the sense of the self then, this is the vision of the totality. You live in the infinite space in which everything is happening. To be focused on, you might say peripheral vision rather than central vision, 
is to be aware of the totality of the situation. The entirety of all of us being here and the energy of us being here and what that means for what should be said here and what should be heard for speaks of its own. Sure, there's individual questions, but that's not going to be what this whole afternoon is about. It's about the totality of the energy and the totality of these beings and their collective drive. That's what it's all about. So if you move around in peripheral world, you're always focused on the totality of the situation. Unfortunately, you miss a lot of the details. <laughs> so it's best to be married if you do this. <laughs> <laughs> who tells you that you put the shirt on with the hole in the sleeve oh geez I thought I thought she'll never see that it's my favorite shirt in her world you cannot wear a shirt if it has a hole in it in my world nobody notices it now oh this is going to be a test Nobody notices that. Nobody notices that. Why? Because I pay attention to the field all the time. You can do the same thing in meditation, where you're constantly aware of consciousness itself. The opposite way is to focus on the content. There is another form of meditation or contemplation in which there is an absolute fixity of focus on the immediate present as it arises with no selection intensely focused on the head of a pin constantly you're focused on this as you'd say this you're focused on the exact words you're saying you're focused on the exact instant so you're saying intensely focused in the intense now you know what the world calls now peripheral and central vision the retina is sort of set up that way too you know whether you're focused with the macula or the field the willingness to surrender all to God. So devotional non-duality means the love for God is enough that you're willing to surrender everything that stands in the way of the realization of the presence of divinity, which turns out not to be an other, but the self. <laughs> you thought it was going to be out there later? <laughs> it's the source of one's existence. To come to the realization, the radical reality of subjectivity. We take subjectivity for granted. We take the field for granted. We take consciousness for granted. This is what we take for granted. This is what we think is important. This is what's trivial and irrelevant. And this is what you are. We ignore what we are in return for focusing on what, that which we are not. At this very instant, 99.9% .9 of your mind is silent. At this very instant, in this entire room, everybody's mind is 99% silent. That's a fact, is it? Better be a fact. <laughs> or you're fired. <laughs> oh, she puts up with me. I don't know how she does it. Eccentric, that's right. 99.9% <laughs> uh, <laughs> .9 of your mind is silent. And the reason you don't notice it is because you're focused on the 1% that's noisy. It's like you have a vast amphitheater. 
let's take a great ballpark that seats 40, 100,000 people. Nobody's there. In the middle of the night, but over in the corner, there's one little tiny transistor radio or one little four-inch TV. That's what you're focused on. The whole amphitheater is empty. There's nobody in the seats. But you think this is where the action is. So you're focused on the little tiny thing of the moment, attracting your attention. Because attention is focused here, you think that's what your mind is. That's not what your mind is. The mind is the absolute silence. If your mind wasn't silent, you wouldn't know what you're thinking about. If it wasn't for the silence in the woods, you couldn't hear any noise. How could you hear a bird sing? Well, it's only against the background of silence. It's only against the background of the innate silence of the mind that you can witness what the mind is thinking about. At that realization, you call it it instead of me. It's not what my mind is thinking about, it's what it's thinking about. That same realization comes about with the body when you leave the identification with the body. You see it doing what it's doing, I have nothing to do with it, never did have anything to do with it. it belongs to nature and is karmically propelled. It just does what it's going to do. It's as entertaining to me as anybody else. I mean, it's just a novelty. <laughs> it is, you know. So what are the fields of realization? I want to get to that. As things arise then, there's a willingness to surrender them to God. There's a willingness to surrender everything as it arises. You see, when you hear a musical note, the note arises and then it falls. As you hear the note, it's already crested and it's already falling. So surrender then is the willingness to let go all positionalities of everything that it arises as it arises. Not to label anything, not to call it anything, not to take a position about it. The willingness to surrender to everything as it arises and allow you to go through major surgery without anesthesia. Done it several times. The minute you resist the pain, or call it pain, the minute you say, you're cutting my thumb off, or the minute you start to resist the pain, the pain is excruciating. The minute you get off your position, but you stay on the edge of the knife, let go resisting, let go resisting. You can disappear any illness as it arises. So if you fall down and you feel you've just twisted your ankle, you can't call it pain, you can't call it twisted ankle. There are sensations coming up. You let go resisting the sensations. Don't label them anything. You're not experiencing pain. Nobody experiences pain. Pain is a label. You can't experience diabetes. You can't experience pneumonia. You can't experience any of those things. Those are all words, labels. You can cough. You can't experience a cough. That's another word you put on it. There's a sensation. You let go resisting the sensation. Completely surrender it to God. The willingness to surrender everything to God as it arises. So as it arises, the willingness to surrender it brings you into a state of alwaysness, of the presence of reality as the source of existence. The ego tends to think in terms of cause and effect, so it thinks if I drive myself to this goal, it thinks of achievement and going there and becoming something greater, you see? 
It never dawns on them that you are being attracted. But it isn't that you're being propelled, it's that you intuit somehow some kind of a destiny within yourself and you now find yourself attracted and interested. So you're not being so much propelled by the past as is attracted by the future. And the whole concept of allowing is foreign to our culture. Our culture thinks in very yang terms. Try harder, push yourself harder. And the awareness of the presence of God is really a consequence of a very yang type of positioning yourself. Yang is like striving and getting and trying harder and very causal on its effect. Spiritual awareness occurs by a revelation. It's like you stand back and spread your arms to the side and say to thee, O Lord, do I surrender my thinkingness, my opinionness, my feelingness. And you appeal to the divinity and you then create the opening in a very yin inner psychic posture of allowing God to reveal. This is very well known, of course, the 12-step program, which is worldwide. One asks for God through study and meditation, asking to become conscious and aware of God's will for me, God's will. So that's a supplication. That's a supplication. That's an acceptance. Spiritual effort is not wasted. First of all, we talk about supplication. We talk about surrendering your life to God. We speak of prayer. We speak of devotion, acts of devotion, pleading with God, asking to be led, asking to be led. And there's a great deal of information that has accumulated over the centuries on how to facilitate the emergence of this capacity to be with the presence of God. And so there's also the inner pathway of knowledge, the knowledge, and of course what the books I've written have to do with is sharing knowledge that would be propitious and help the person to unveil the inner state which stands waiting. The inner state stands waiting. And all you have to do is remove the blocks to the awareness. Therefore, the information I give tries to undo the blocks just through knowledge. So it's really the pathway of self-knowledge. And of course, specifically, the thing that stands in our way is the ego. So consciousness research has to do with discerning the exact nature of the ego and through comprehension of how it works and how it originated, you can begin to relinquish it. The first awareness we try to make is to realize that there's a difference between perception and essence. Of course, Descartes pointed that out centuries ago. There is the world the way you see it, and therefore how you perceive it, and how you think it is, your opinion. And then there's the world the way it actually is, which is independent of what you think about it, or how you label it, or what your opinion is. So the spiritual work is to try to transcend perception and begin to experience the essence of things. I think the calibrated scale of consciousness speeds that up tremendously. Because once you've learned how to even if you look at a few lists of the calibrated levels of various things in our world, you begin to intuit it. You go, oh, aha, uh aha. -huh, uh -huh. Underneath the sheep's clothing is what's really there. Inside the Trojan horse, <laughs> you begin to stop falling for the facile and foolish. And of course, we live in a media society in which perception eclipses everything. How a person looks on stage, etc. People are very impressed by that, rather than by the quality and the substance of the speaker.
major catastrophe comes about, I'm concerned with the psychic, psychological, emotional suffering of people who are in that situation, and I pray for the relief of their anxiety and fear. Because the crisis is always the same, depending on the circumstances, people think there is different. Actually, an acute crisis is always the same no matter what the occasion is. Shock and surprise, disbelief, and in the middle of it, you really don't think. You don't really get upset about it until it's over. <laughs> A crisis is so fast in its onset, unexpected. It's over before you know it. And then very often the fear, it's surprising, the fear doesn't come up until the whole event is over already. And then there's like a quick rerun and the fear comes up at the rerun. At the time of the accident, there wasn't any fear. So you handle the energy of the emotion. You handle the energy and not the quality, the energy of it. So all you have to do is surrender to the emotion, to the energy itself, and let go resisting the energy. And the energy will take care of it. And don't forget, you have also the wisdom of the collective unconscious. And if you don't remember how to handle it, the collective does, because mankind has lived through an innumerable number of crises. And in the collective, awareness and consciousness of mankind are all the tools you'll need. And so you sort of surrender into it, into your humanness. And we often do that by when we pray for God, that's all we do is that we just suddenly come into the wisdom, accept the wisdom of the collective consciousness of all of mankind, which of course over the millennia has learned how to handle every crisis that's imaginable. Don't resist the emotion and say, of course you're gonna be upset of course you're going to be worried. Of course you're going to say to yourself, well, what are we going to do now? Of course you're going to go into a panic. So you let it be okay to have those. Uh, those are just natural responses. Those are just natural responses. They're just part of humanness. So you don't have to label it that you are responding it that way. It's humanness that's responding that way. And the average human will go through a period of dismay, panic, fear, and then, of course, it'll start making plans and discuss in its own mind what reparative steps you're going to take to ensure survival now that you've lost your job. Or one of these phases, it becomes protracted. You get stuck in grieving or you get stuck in fear. You get stuck in resentment. And that's not due to worry, fear, or anger. The problem there is one of stuckness. How come you're unwilling to move on? So I would point out to the patient, well, what are you getting out of this constant? Resentment would be a common one. My wife has left me or my boss has fired me or something. But they're milking it. So I want them to see that they're milking it. So, you know, I tell them, well, that was a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, it's time to get over it. <laughs> that they're milking off of it and feeding off of it. And they're using it. So when they begin to see that they are indeed propagating it themselves or whatever they're getting out of it. In our present society, the competition is for victimhood. It's almost hilarious how people want to rush on stage to tell you how they're the victim. And they're almost in competition to see who's the most wronged. Who's the most wronged? Either gender or race or color or... <laughs> money, social position, politics, whatever it is. Everybody's out there in the competition to see who's been the most wronged. So it's like a moral competition to play the victim, you see. Who's the most wronged here? 
<laughs> Is it the old people, the young people, the Republicans, the Democrats? <laughs> Who's getting the biggest part of the wrong, do you know? And it's almost comical when you see it. Everybody just loves to rush on television and tell you how they've been wronged. So that's narcissism. Narcissism is to milk everything for all you can get out of it. And then when you finally see it for what it's worth, you see it through the viewpoint of self-feeding of narcissism. You only feel sorry that people get stuck in it. It's one thing that as a passing phase to milk it for all it's worth, but then there's a time to get over it. So what you want to do is help people get over it and move on in life. David says that problems are not handled on the level at which they seem to be occurring, but on the next higher consciousness level. Here, he'll tell us why. So grief can't be handled on the level of grief. So you look at the levels of consciousness and you look and see where you're at, and then you move up. So from grief or resentment or something like that, you can move up to acceptance. You can move up to acceptance and stop personalizing it. It's not you, it's the nature of life. It's the nature of protoplasmic life. It's the nature of human life. It's the nature of life in this country at this time. The employment rate has nothing to do with you personally. These are all personal phenomena. So you learn to sort of generalize it, not take it personally, and move up to the next level of consciousness, which is hope. So when you lose one job, instead of dismay and anger, resentment and depression, you move up to neutral, you move into so, 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 so you lost this job, so. I mean, you look in the paper, lots of jobs. You walk down the street, there are lots of jobs. The town I live on, you can walk down any street in the business district and you'll see help wanted signs. Right in the middle of the great unemployment crisis, there's help wanted signs in practically half the stores. Everybody wants help. People don't want to work those hours or for that kind of money or under those conditions. But if you let all that go, you'd be happy to walk down the street and I can make good money every single day of the street by washing windows. So they just see that it's not really a financial problem. It's one of choice that you really don't want to move to the level of window washer. You want to do what you want to do, play piano or dance or paint beautiful pictures and still get rich. <laughs> Move up to hope that this is the opening for a new exciting adventure. You don't know what the adventure is going to be, and you don't know what kind of a job you're going to come up with. I find every job has things that are interesting about it. No matter what kind of a job you have or where, there's always new people to meet. So one of the interesting things about any new job is to meet all these new people that you're going to be working with and spending time with, get acquainted with them. So there's new friendships to be made, new associations to be made new people that are interesting or entertaining. Some of the people you meet are going to be funny and some people are going to be awful. And so you know that. And it's just a new adventure. So life goes from one adventure to another adventure. It's always a new adventure, living one day at a time. Next, David shares a story of how much the mind has power over us in time of crisis. A woman received a letter that her son was missing in action. And she went into a depression. She stopped talking, she stopped eating, and she just rocked back and forth in her rocker. And nothing you did or said could dissuade her. She wouldn't eat, she wouldn't talk. And a week later, there was a telegram from the War Department, or whatever it was, that it was an error. It wasn't her son that had been killed. It was somebody with the same name with just one letter, and her son had two of the same letters, and his name Philip with two L's, and the other guy had a Philip with a one L. 
Anyway, due to a misspelling, she was misinformed. So after being told that her son had not died, she showed no visible reaction at all. And everybody said to her, Granny, Granny, he's not dead. It was all a mistake. And she went on rocking, looking off into space, went on rocking and looking into space. And it took therapeutic help, actually, to get her out of the state. Because once the state took over, you might say it released all the grief of many lifetimes that hit her all at once. And they say, Granny, Granny, he's perfectly all right. We got the telegram that it was a mistake in the spelling. And she went right on rocking silently, back and forth, back and forth. So once a state comes on strongly, it then has a life of its own, you might say. It gains dominance. And it's almost like you're possessed by another spirit. So some latent spirit in your unconscious takes over and begins to dominate the field. You see that with people with resentments too. They're resentful and angry. And you ask them how long ago that was, it was 20 years ago. <laughs> I remember saying to a guy, yeah, that was 20 years ago. It's time to get off it. You've been juicing it for 20 years. So what you do is you make the person conscious of the gain that they're getting out of clinging to it. And you get them to move off of it. But people will cling to injustice. They're great about injustice. They get so much gain out of being wronged that the competition is really to see who's the most wronged. <laughs> Next, David shares with us a powerful prayer to use in times of crisis. That prayer is, Please be with me and show me how to surrender and handle this experience. That's a very good prayer. Any prayer in which you are calling forth the will of God, calling upon God for help, is helpful. And if you calibrate the energy of the event before and after you do this prayer, you see that the prayer is uplifting and it does bring forth a great deal of healing energy. And therefore, you'll come out of something that you would not have come out of before. Live in the present. And they're living in a fearful expectation. And they're getting a payoff out of that. And then you find out where in life they picked up this habit of fearfulness. And you'll see all these things reflect an unawareness of the presence and the availability of God and divine help. So if you think you're all alone against the possibilities of this world, you tend to be fearful. Once you discover that you're not alone, so it's really an unawareness of the presence of God as an available source of help. Once you're aware of the presence of God as a source of help, that fearfulness disappears because you begin depending on God instead of your ego. So what you're really saying is my ego in and of itself is incapable of handling this whole deal. But God is the source of life and God is the source of strength and hope and awareness. So you pray to God and you surrender it to God and you say, well, God, I've done all I can do about it. And in the meantime, you keep digging your row in the garden instead of laying back expecting that it magically the radishes are going to suddenly sprout out of the ground. So it takes your effort. So divine help is available at all times, but you don't discover it until you surrender to it. And then you find that the energy of God handles the thing for you. You don't have to handle it yourself. And when you let it go, you realize it gets handled. It gets handled without your help at all. God didn't really need you at all. You were just a witness to what was happening. And if karmically you're destined to leave the world at this time, 
So you gracefully leave the world this time. What's the point of crying and struggling and doing an infantile kick your little tiny toes up in the air about it? If it's your time to leave, so leave already. <laughs> if not now, later. <laughs> well, that does take a rather profound spiritual experience. The experiential awareness of that which you really are, the self with a capital S, is beyond life and death, has no beginning, has no ending, and is not made of the same dimension of that which begins and ends. It's a different dimension in that your reality is not the personal self, but some essence within you that is beyond the personal self, out of which the sense of a personal self arises, but independent of the personal self. Otherwise, if we put you to sleep with hypnosis or anesthesia or something, you would cease to exist. No, it's just your conscious awareness of yourself as a self with a small s. Once you experience the self with a capital S, the fear of dying disappears forever. That which you are is not subject to either birth or death. It always is, always has been, always will be, and is eternal. And that we call divinity, the essence of God within you. So the source of life is the essence of divinity within you, within you. If you're willing to say, if I said you're going to die within five minutes, if you said, oh, what do you know? I thought today was going to be an interesting day. If you completely surrender to it, the fear disappears. So fear is not a necessity. Fear is an accoutrement that we add on to it. It's what the narcissistic ego adds on. I mean, what could be more awful to an egocentric narcissistic ego than the thought that it won't exist or it isn't very important? That's a great affront, is it not? Next, David talks about the importance of letting go of fear. This is a habit of the mind that if it hangs on to the fear, they're deriving something that will aid their survival out of it. That there's some gain to the emotionality. There is no gain to the emotionality. The best thing to do is to surrender to the emotion itself. If you do that, it'll dissipate itself. If you allow fear to just completely overwhelm you and surrender to the fear, within very surprisingly short order, the fear disappears and it becomes like a so what. It's an awareness you really only can reach through meditation in a way. That every emotion, every no matter what it is, fear, anger, resentment, contentment, love, etc., arises. And then you become aware of what is it that it is arising from. What is it that it's reflecting? And because you're trying to go through the self with a small s, the egocentric, narcissistic ego, and get to the real self, that's a little more sophisticated. Very often it takes years of meditation to do that. Sometimes it takes years of meditation. And then suddenly in one instant, that which you consider your reality is and functions spontaneously, autonomously, without you. The you, that which you consider the you, is not even involved. And at that point, very often you leave the body or you no longer experience yourself as the body or in a body or having a body. And you become the witness of the body. And at that point, not only do you not value it, it doesn't seem interesting. And the first time you leave the body, you're amazed. There's the body laying there, and you think, gee, I'd be concerned about that. But you aren't. <laughs> it's just a dumb thing laying there. <laughs> it's a body, not my body. It's not me. It's not particularly interesting.
we're feeling fear as an emotion, so obviously we are the one that is creating it. However, the mind does this out of habit. You're supposed to be afraid of this and supposed to be afraid of that. So a lot of our fears are really programmed. Sickness, old age, suffering and death, I mean, that's universal. Sickness, old age, suffering and death, poverty are universal human fears. The ones that are reality-based are based on the temporality of human life and the vulnerability of the physical body. So they're not completely irrational. So we're not talking about eliminating normal survival caution. But caution is different than fear. Caution when you're walking down certain streets in New York City, if you don't use caution, you won't be around too long. So caution is a part of wisdom. But caution is different than fear. Caution has a rationality to it. And fear can arise, as everyone ever knows who had a nightmare out of nowhere, and sudden panic. So we're not talking about eliminating normal self-preservation. We're just talking about irrational fears, irrational fears. And a lot of them you get over by facing them. I always tell people, you have a fear of public speaking, I had a fear of public speaking for many years, couldn't speak. One time I was more or less compromised into having to speak in front of an audience. And I was really quite anxious. And then suddenly I said something funny. Something funny came to mind. And I just said whatever it was, and it was funny. And the minute the audience started to laugh, my fear disappeared. So I made the magic discovery, and I have spoken hundreds of times since then. <laughs> And that was because I discovered that humor relieves all anxiety. So putting something funny in what you're saying, if it can be accomplished, will relieve your fear. The minute the audience laughs, you feel okay. That's sort of a magical moment, that discovery. I discovered it by accident. And so some degree of humor makes it more interesting. It certainly makes it more comfortable for the speaker. If there's sufficient danger in the environment, as we said, fear is a rational survival technique. What we're talking about is fears that have no basis in reality, and overcoming them takes a certain degree of courage and a willingness to plunge into them. I think the average person doesn't have any trouble differentiating the two. And like any feeling, if you stop avoiding it and plunge into it and say, I want more of it and let it run its course, you will eventually run it out. And sometimes you can do this with imagination. You imagine what it is you're afraid of. And you let the fear come up and you let go resisting the fear. Well, there is a limitation to the amount of any emotion. And if you keep coming up with what you're afraid of, eventually you'll run out of fear and you'll find it's almost impossible to make yourself afraid of the next thing that you bring up to be afraid of. So you can run out an emotion by letting go resisting it and you uh, decompress it. So I call it decompress it. Then you say, what else are you afraid of? And what else are you afraid of? Until finally you run out. You really run out of things that you can imagine yourself being afraid of. Being eaten by a tiger, you know? <laughs> so one thing you can control is focus. And you can think about your toes. If I tell somebody, when you go up on that speaking in front of the podium, I want you to think about your toes while you're there. <laughs> well, if you try that, you'll find out you can't be afraid because you're too busy thinking about your toes, and eventually that makes you laugh, and the minute you laugh, your fear disappears anyways. Think about your toes. <laughs>
once in a while when I give a lecture, there's some authors' names I always forget. So I pictured them as being written on top of my toes. And when I can't think of it during the lecture, I looked down at my toes and suddenly I got it. <laughs> Rupert Sheldrake. I always forget his name in the middle of a lecture. I put Rupert Sheldrake across the top of my toes. And if I can't think of it in the middle of a lecture, I look down at my toes and I get it. Formative causation. Rupert Sheldrake has to do with formative causation. I've done this many times with people who have a speaking phobia and have them practice at home and then practice with me and then practice some of the techniques that I have just described. That's probably the most common one I've gotten a request for in the past was speaking phobias. People who may be famous writers and famous in other areas but have certain phobias. So I take them through the whole experience to imagine it and to keep letting go until finally they run out the fear. You'll run out of fear. There's only so much fear that's compressed, so you can run it out. Because people have sort of a, like poking a place in your body that's sore. You ask yourself to stop doing that and distract yourself with a more positive kind of a way of discharging nervous energy. If you have a fear of something, you use what I say is, and then what? And then you keep surrendering each level. So you say, well, if I lose this job, then I won't have enough money to live on. Then you say, and then what? And if I don't have enough money to live on, then I'll lose my house. And you say, and then what? Well, if I lose my house, then I got to rent an apartment somewhere. You say, and then what? And then if I don't have any money at all, I'll have to move out of the apartment too. And you say, and then what? I won't have enough money to buy food. And you say, and then what? And then I'll starve to death. <laughs> you think to yourself, how are you going to do that? Are you going to sit on the sidewalk and starve to death? <laughs> no. And then what? And then I'll get a tin cup and hold it up and beg for money. And then what? And then people will laugh at me as an idiot sitting out there with a tin cup. And then what? And then the cops will come and take me away. And then what? They'll decide I'm crazy. And then what? And then they'll put me in a mental hospital. And then what? And then I'll have a psychiatrist. Who... <laughs> so you keep doing the, and then what? And as you surrender to the, and then what? You disappear it into absurdity. You disappear it into absurdity. But you do get to the bottom of the fears. I'll be poor and ugly and nobody will like me and nobody will hire me. And you keep going and then what? Until you'll hit a bottom of it and you finally run out. You run out of and then what's. There's a stack, so you work through the stack. So if it doesn't go well today, then, then what? Then I'll have wasted coming over here for nothing. And then what? And then I'll be mad at myself. And then what? And then my wife will be annoyed with me. And then what? And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> then we wasted all that money on gas. And then what? And then you wasted all that time. And then what? So you get to the bottom of it. And by the time you get to the bottom of it, you find yourself laughing at it. But then you also realize that these have been fears that have been in the back of your mind. You didn't allow yourself to experience them or think of them because they didn't seem rational at the time. But as you let them go, you realize that, yes, they've been there, and they've been there for a long time. The Grand Canyon balloon experience was unexpected, and I thought I was going to be terrified the whole time. What happened was, as I looked over the side, I just let the fear keep coming up. And what happened is I ran it out. I ran out of fear. <laughs> I didn't know you could run it out. I thought that it would be a permanent thing, that you would always be afraid of a certain experience. But I discovered you can run it out. 
So these processes where you lay down, you imagine yourself in the circumstance, let the fear run out. Or if you run into the circumstance, you just plain face it. And eventually it'll just run out. There's only so much fear that'll run. It'll stop. And people are amazed. They think it's going to be there permanently. It won't. Keep running it and sometimes by introducing music. Music as a background will change the emotional coloration of a memory. So to review that memory in the face of some kind of music that has sort of the opposite effect can have quite a dramatic impact. Changes the entire field. The thing that raises it the most, of course, is turning a situation over to God. So prayer and turning a thing over to God is the strongest. I remember when I was fishing the rattlesnake, there I was all alone. I suddenly came upon this rattlesnake and he was all coiled up and ready to go. And I surrendered to God at great depth. I just let go and surrendered into the knowingness of the presence of God. And a profound peace overcame both the rattlesnake and myself. It was like we were suspended in time in a state of peaceful tranquility, sort of a Shangri-La magicalness. And the snake was calm and peaceful, and I was calm and peaceful, and both of us relinquished our fear of each other, because the snake was afraid of me too, you see. <laughs> but both of us were suspended, and there was a feeling of profound stillness, calm, peace, and timelessness. So we managed to escape into sort of a divine state and that divine state, the power of it, also tranquilized the rattlesnake. So neither one of us moved. We were both absolutely just poised. And it was a great moment. It lasted like a temporal time, <laughs> a matter of seconds probably. But in experiential time, it was timeless. It was more than a moment. It was a great period of time. Invoking divinity, of course, is the most powerful way to transform it. And on the other hand, you can't dictate to God how you want it to occur. That's what's, I think, traditionally called outlining, telling God how you want it done, <laughs> when and with whom. When you surrender, that means you surrender it. And if you surrender, you say, well, whether I get this job or not, I surrender it to God. Well, then you can't turn around and complain, well, I did that, but then I didn't get the job. Because if you surrendered it, you wouldn't be complaining that you didn't get the job. It would be okay if you got it, and it'd be okay if you didn't. If you don't get the job, it's because God wants you to work elsewhere, so you win either way. The next volume in our series serves to answer one of life's most profound spiritual questions. What is truth? After all, in this age of the internet we are living in, you can find many, many blogs and websites from so-called authorities or gurus claiming to speak the truth on any number of subjects. And often, these claims conflict or outright contradict one another. So again, what is truth? In this classic interview segment that follows, taken from David's program, Truth Versus Falsehood, a Nightingale Conant producer has a lively discussion with David on what he calls his 38 characteristics inherent in spiritual truth. 
And after listening, we hope you'll be a bit closer to answering that profound question. Dr. Hawkins, I'm really interested you actually created identifications and characteristics, a list of spiritual truth integrous teachers and teachings. There are 38 characteristics inherent in spiritual truth integrous mm-hmm. teachers and teaching that you've researched. Could you please share those with the listeners? I know the first being universality. Universality means the truth has always been revealed exactly the same throughout all history. Where there are thousands of years, different parts of the globe, different cultures, different ethnic setting, the realized mystic has spoken the same truth throughout all of time. In fact, it is this quality that has brought up doubt in the minds of some skeptics. And the skeptic who is scientific says, on the other hand, it still troubles me that in diverse cultures, many centuries uh, removed from each other, the same declaration is made over and over again. There must be some universality. So truth is always true at all times and all places to all people, you know. may not be discoverable, but the eventual truth that emerges is always the same truth. Truth by its nature has to be the same no matter what, because it's not subject to personal opinion or views, etc. Right. Now the second you say is truth is non-exclusionary. Yes, truth is uh, all-inclusive. There's no secret about it. Nobody owns it. It's open for every anyone to discover who wishes to do so and is wishing to go through the inner discipline to discover it for themselves. It's not limited. It's available to everyone. You know, just like seeing the sky is available to everyone. Yeah, it's just not exclusive. That means that it's all-inclusive. There's no secrets. It's not limited. It's not sectarian. It means that nobody owns the truth exclusively, despite the fact that many such groups peddle that claim, that they are the sole owners of truth. Uh Nobody has any exclusive ownership of the truth any more than they have exclusive ownership of sunlight or the sky. I know the next one is availability. It's available because, like the sky, it's open to everyone. It's not exclusive. There's no secrets to be revealed, nothing to be sold, no magical formulas or mysteries. When the sky has no mysteries. You know. <laughs> it stands open, honest, revealed. Mm-hmm. And the next is integrity of purpose. Yes, yeah, spiritual organization has integrity of purpose. It has nothing to gain or lose. In other words, it has no profit whether you go along with them and nothing to lose if you leave them. Why? Because truth is self-sufficient and self-fulfilling in and of itself, like the state of what the world calls enlightenment or self-realization. It's complete and total. It needs nothing from anyone. It doesn't need people's agreement. It's complete and total unto itself. It has no needs. Uh The next is that truth is non-sectarian. That's sort of a development of uh, quality number one of universality. Truth is not an exposition of a limitation. See, people want to claim exclusive ownership of truth. You know? Here's this select little group that nobody even heard of. They've got this great revolution from Master Baba on the other side. I mean, the whole thing is idiotic. And then they claim that this is the exclusive truth the whole world must abide by, you see. So 
Truth is non-sectarian. It's not limited to favorite groups. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And the next is that truth is independent of opinion. That means it's not subject to the intellect. So whether a thing makes sense intellectually, whether it makes sense within the linear world of form or not, is irrelevant. So theology, as he tries to make spiritual truth fit within the, the explicable, the definable, the logical, and put it in an intellectual context. You can say something about it, but what you say about it is not what it is, because you're only talking about it. To really know truth, you have to be it. You have to be it. I know the seventh characteristic is that truth is devoid of positionality. Yes, as we mentioned, truth is not anti-anything. The reason is there is no opposite to truth, there's only its absence. Uh, so ignorance is just the absence of uh, truth, and therefore truth doesn't really have any enemies. doesn't have any enemies. Whether people believe it or not, it's their problem. It either wins or loses by just affirmation. Is. The eighth characteristic is truth has no requirements or demands. Yes, in other words, truth being a self-fulfilling and integrous has nothing to peddle. So there's no required memberships, don't have to pay any dues, there's no regulations, oaths, rules, no threats if you want to leave or not participate. Freedom, therefore, is intrinsic, yeah, in which we'll get to later. Yeah? And then the ninth characteristic is non-controlling. Yes, this differentiates it from cults, in which the leader begins to uh, want to control everybody, uh, down to minute details. There's sex lies, how you should dress, whether you should have a beard or not wear a beard, or have a hat, or, you know, what would God care about whether you had or have it wear a hat or have a beard? Or... <laughs> <laughs> cults are characterized by not only control, but almost slavery. The tenth is that truth is free of force or intimidation. Yes, because the downside of cults is that there is progressive, you know, uh, brainwashing. All kinds of adulation of leaders, oh, master so-and-so, baba, baba, and all kinds of rituals, indoctrinations. These people are really programmed. They're really programmed, scientifically programmed. And you say, how could people seeking the truth be programmed to do the things they do? People don't realize how powerful programming is. That's why there's professional deep programmers out there. Because once you've been programmed, you're blind and deaf. You see the desperate letters we get. Oh my God, the letters we get. You know, people that are caught in cults and uh, can't get out, the family can't get them out. Uh, the whole situation is desperate. Then they all take poison uh, Kool-Aid and die by the hundreds, you know, from forested intimidation, brainwashing, and the 11th characteristic of truth is that it's non-binding? Well, because spiritual truth is complete and total in itself, it has nothing to gain. So it doesn't have any regulations, it doesn't have any laws, no contracts, you don't have to sign anything. And the thing about oaths and pledges, you know, the wisdom says never go along with an oath or a pledge. Why? Because you're binding yourself in more than this lifetime. All kinds of horrible things happen to people. And if you research the karmic propensity, they took an oath in a lifetime. They took an oath. And the oath usually ends up, or may the reverse be my fate. The minute you hear that, watch out. Because you know what? 
karmically the reverse is going to be your fate because you just took an oath. I've heard that. I've heard about it. It's scary, yeah. isn't it? The twelfth characteristic being freedom, yes. Yes, well, obviously, from you know, intuitively understanding spiritual truth, you would understand. Freedom is innate to divinity itself. Karmically, we are the only one who paddles our own canoe. It's by our choice and our options. So spiritual truth, then, would be uh, exhibit the quality of divinity itself, uh, freedom. Everything is voluntary. There's no adulation of people. People who serve a spiritual organization are the servants, and they do what they do, and there's no point of adulation and that kind of thing, you know. And the 13th characteristic being commonality. Yeah, that means recognition is dependent on what you are. Your reality comes out of what you have become and what you are now, not as a result of some addition, external addition, the title or a trapping or an office or some extraneous power. Huh? The recognition is a consequence of what you have actually become. We give people credence because uh, we are believing in their integrity, huh? uh, not because they have some title. Huh? And we're so lost in titles. You know, that, that's in contrast to, to the cult leaders. Who, you know, the only power they have is their title. Uh, but their knowledge of truth, you know, if you calibrate it, it's usually less than 200. Well, it's always less than 200. <laughs> well, I get nervous when I, I saw something recently, which was have everyone pray to me. You know, there's, there's potential world destruction. Have everyone pray to me. And to me, that reeked of dangerous cult. Why would Good I pray God, to yes. you? Pray to, pray to him. It's only a human. If you calibrate him, you're going to find everybody's praying to somebody who calibrates at about 195. It's yeah. only a person below 200 would even make such a exactly. claim. You got it. Exactly. The 14th characteristic of truth is inspirational. Yes, inspiration is different than glamorization. So enthusiasm, you know, many people are impressed because the teacher is called a great avatar and has millions of followers worldwide. When you calibrate the avatar, the one I'm thinking about right now calibrates about 300, you see. Look at all the followers and look at the title. Theatrics, you know, there's costuming and posturing. And, you know, it's always popular to wear a robe and sandals and have long hair and a staff, you know. That's the old Jesus symbol. I'm sure Jesus didn't even look like that, you know what I'm saying? But that, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get uh, Hollywood theatrical gurus, you know, I'm saying, they come on like they're on stage, you know. Um, now, the 15th characteristic of truth is that it's non-materialistic. Yes, uh, spiritual truth is not interested in financial gain, wealth, pomp, etc. So, you know, there's many cults. They're not rare. They're common, common, who fleece you financially, work you for money. It's really horrendous. Sad things we got. I mean, if you're complete and total within yourself, of what good would be worldly wealth? Well, what happens is the cult leader of the religion it's pretty easy to rationalize that. Well, if we have lots of money, then we can spread the good word and save the world. Thanks a lot. You and everybody else who's screwed religion out of its integrity has said exactly the same thing. For the sake of the good Lord, you can sign over all your goods to us. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, your wife can work for free in the kitchen and we'll take over your kids at a certain age and you can sign your property over to us right here, and now you've just saved your life, you know, so. That's such thin rationalization. You wonder, anybody can, you know, for the good of the face, we need your wealth. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is it always your wealth that they need? <laughs> your money. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Now, the 16th characteristic of truth is self-fulfilling. Yes, it's already total and complete. It doesn't need to sell. So, this is the counter, you know, proselytization, propagation, uh, advertising, and promotion. A lot of these uh, non-integrous groups, you know, they're peddling some simple spiritual technique. It's a simple technique which you can frankly read in any spiritual book. They'll take two sentences and build the whole program around that. Now they charge you $450 for a training weekend, uh, workshops and workshops. In the meantime, they put out some very slick-looking advertising. You know, it's like uh, investing in the gold market or something, these great big things that come in the mail. Then they have celebrities in there, you know, actresses and famous names and all, who swear by how wonderful this particular technique or something is. Uh, for which, of course, there is a charge. And many of these are even uh, marketing systems. They're really marketing sales, whether you're selling vacuum cleaners or the specific spiritual technique. The marketing is exactly the same. The strategy is the same. The advertising is the same. They got a picture of the great leader, you know what I'm saying? And then they have celebrities telling you how wonderful their life is now. Mm-hmm. You know, they took the workshop on how to be happy. I'll tell you how to be happy. I already mentioned about 92 things. Just do any of them and you'd be happy. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, Dr. Hawkins, you charge for your workshops. You, there is a, there's an exchange of money. How do they discern? No, I don't charge for the workshop. I don't charge anything for the workshop. When you put on a lecture, you're going to have to have $10,000, $15,000 up front. Now, there's legitimate costs, mm-hmm. legitimate costs for publications, and rental space, employees, etc. So if you're going to run a big meeting, for instance, you're going to have a need in a whole office staff to handle emails, mail, etc. At one hotel that we did in town, you had to put up $15,000 in advance. Plus, you had to guarantee, I forget how many rooms, 100 rooms or something. Uh, and the rooms were like 100 and some out apiece. Uh, so you're taking on about a $40,000, $50,000 obligation, you see. Well, to keep up with that, you're going to have to develop a whole commercialized marketing plan. So you can see how these organizations get themselves into where they're at. Mm-hmm. They're going to promote it, get all this money. Now they're going to build this big um, hoopla lodge, or they're going to you know, have a big spread someplace. That's going to cost millions. So what happens is you get into the necessity of constantly peddling, commercializing, promoting, proselytizing. And what is the intention there? What is the intention? No, but there's legitimate charges. Uh, I myself don't charge anything. I don't charge anything for a lecture. Whatever the circumstance is in that culture at that time, you know, you go along with. You ha- you've got to pay for parking space. You've got to pay for all these things. You've got maybe, when we run a lecture, it takes eight to ten employees. Well, they're all on the payroll. Mm-hmm. And then you have to rent the space. And then you have to have insurance on the space. And then you have to have an advanced deposit. Then you have to have triplicates of the lease. Then you have to have the lawyer look it over. Then you have to take out crowd insurance. Right, so it I mean, costs the you, it's going to cost them. So uh, how you, do they... You can't put any public event on without it costing mm-hmm. about what we charge. So what we do is we cover it all. Mm-hmm. And then you have the co- cost of the office staff. You know, you've got hundreds of people calling in for weeks and months, mm-hmm. making reservations, changing reservations, getting them into a motel, and making all the arrangements, flight arrangements, pick us up at the airport... 
You have to have a whole staff to just process it. Mm -hmm. No, we're not talking about that kind of covering covering your expenses because. But then you also need to make a expenses. living. You also need. To I don't need that to make a living. I've had the biggest practice in the United States for 50 years. I don't need it to make a living at all. So then, for an <laughs> authentic, integral spiritual teacher, mm -hmm. they should not make a profit on the speaking. No, profit is a different concept. Making a living. Every minister makes a living and needs to make a living so that he can spend his time and energy helping his flock. Mm -hmm. That's not profit. He's not profiting over it. No, a tigris minister obviously is supported by the congregation. To profit means he goes out to his congregation now and begins to exploit them. And of course, they hit the newspaper. You get a religious follower, you work him into a deal. So exploitation, profiteering is what I'm talking about, profiteering. Mm -hmm. No, you got to pay your minister because uh, if the minister can't live a decent life, he can't put his energy into helping his flock. Right, right. So you got a legitimate need. You take a person uh, well advanced in life, you know, they don't need the money. You know, they don't need the money. What would you do with it? Mm -hmm. You can only eat one steak at a time. <laughs> you find that out no matter how rich point. you are. So the rest becomes an encumbrance, encumbrance, you see. Right. The 17th characteristic is that truth is detached. <laughs> truth itself is detached from worldly affairs because truth doesn't have uh, any dependency on worldly affairs. The degree of truth uh, that is exhibited by worldly affairs is uh, known. That's what this book does, for instance. But there's no involvement, in other words, you don't hear me saying, I want to save the, the world or say, you know, globe, bring about global anything. You remember Ramana, Ramana Maharshi said? He says, surrender the world to God and give up your egoistic intentions for what you perceive because what you perceive doesn't even exist. That's only your perception. What you see as disaster is somebody else's salvation, for God's sake. So if you want to turn this world into a nirvana, it would lose its purpose. You would then have to create a whole other planet where evolving souls can come on, where there's a whole mixture of options, both positive and negative, so they can undo their negative karma and gain positive karma. So if you turn this into a celestial realm, there wouldn't be any reason for a celestial realm. It would be the celestial realm. Okay. So if you envision that the purpose of this world is for the evolution of consciousness, huh? then it's a perfect world. This world is perfect, just the way it is. There's nothing to improve. If people didn't hit bottom, they wouldn't turn around, would they? No. So you're gonna deprive them of the opportunity of hitting bottom? So <laughs> my understanding of the intention of human life is it's the maximum opportunity for karmic gain. The Buddha said, rare it is to be born a human, extremely rare to be born a human, the gift, the karmic gift of having earned to become born a human. So why would we want to negate the gift of being born a human? On the other hand, it has a downside. So as to avoid the karmic necessity to be returned to human life, because human life inherently also leads to poverty, sickness, old age, and death. Grief and loss, uh huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but human life, you learn that, so you keep coming back until you stop being attached to human life. Now, the 18th characteristic of truth being that it is benign. Yes, it's benign, uh, because truth is identifiable along a whole calibrated level. 
and its opposite doesn't exist unless you demonize it. So people who are fighting the absence of truth by personalizing it as the devil or evil or something, then you got what current terrorism is about. Current terrorism is, you know, war against the enemies. The enemies. How can they be the enemy of God? <laughs> How can you be the enemy of the sky? That which prevails beyond all time, space, locality, and is non-linear is not vulnerable to anything. How could it have an enemy? Does the sky have an enemy? Tell me, who's the enemy of sunlight? <laughs> so truth has no enemies. Mm. Now the 19th characteristic of truth is that it's non-intentional. Yes, uh, truth does not intervene. It doesn't have any, it's not trying to promulgate or promote anything. Spiritual integrity is invitational but not promotional. We tell you how it is, how it was and how it is now. Those are famous words. And if you wish to join us, you will be welcome with open arms. But we have nothing to gain by promoting your participation or your belief in our system, see? Nothing to promote or nothing to gain because now you've compromised yourself. So truth does not compromise itself or make itself conditional. It doesn't have anything to peddle or sell. It has nothing to gain. Yeah? Not interested in power over others. Now the 20th characteristic of truth is that it's non-dualistic. Everything comes about by virtue of potentiality becoming actuality when the propensities are there, when conditions are right. You see the emergence of potential being realized coming into actuality. Huh? What you really are seeing is the unmanifest becoming manifest. What you're really seeing is the unfolding of creation. And the 21st characteristic is that truth is tranquility and peace. Now, this is sort of a development from what we've said before, tranquility and peace. To have peace of mind, in other words, you cannot make your peace of mind dependent on consequences. You can lead them, but you can't make them drink because otherwise you would have no peace of mind. So what you can bring people is the truth and then the effect is up to their karmic propensity because that's their purpose of being in this world. Because people who are really aligned with truth and have arisen to a certain point are electrified the minute they hear it. The minute you hear it, they say, that's it, just got it, uh-huh. Right. See? Tranquility and peace means you're not trying to force others. You're not trying to control God. You know, everybody wants to help God. God doesn't need help anymore than gravity needs help. The infinite field of consciousness itself is infinitely powerful, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the 22nd characteristic of truth is equality. Yes, because this is exhibiting that because if you like chocolate, you don't have to vilify vanilla. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Because all of life has its intrinsic value, and therefore it's a matter of not being for this and against that. It's a matter of preference. So you can prefer chocolate over vanilla. That doesn't mean you have to be anti-vanilla. You see, the vociferous politics of this, you know, near the end of 2004 was so emotionally disturbing. They just didn't say, you know, I prefer this candidate because, and then tell you the wonderful things about the candidate. Mm -hmm. Now they had to vilify the other one. Mm -hmm. And the vilifiers, I think, tend to win votes for the other side. Interesting point. Now, the 23rd characteristic of truth is non-temporality. Because it's not based in the physical. 
And the basic truth of all this is that life is not subject to death. The law of the conservation of energy, the law of conservation of matter, and for what reasons never done on mankind in any formal, specific way, the law of conservation of life. Life cannot be destroyed, it can only change form. <clears throat> the minute you leave this body, uh, you look down, anybody's been out of body or had a near-death experience, you know, the body has got nothing to do with you. In fact, it looks sort of, you gotta be sort of convinced to go back in it. There it lays in the bed and it looks sick in a hospital or something like that. And here you are at peace and tranquility, you know, about 20, 20 feet away from the body. The 24th characteristic of truth is beyond proof. Yeah, spiritual reality is nonlinear. That which is provable is linear. Therefore, you cannot prove spiritual truth. It's a complete subject of realization and needs no agreement, uh, needs no verification. It needs nothing at all. It stands on its own. It can be corroborated, verified, testified to, but it cannot be proven. So that's why there's a diversity between science and spirituality. Because science goes up to the door, but it can't go through the door. Because to go through the door, you have to shift paradigm. You go from the linear to the nonlinear. And in the nonlinear, which is a different paradigm of reality, it's the context instead of the content. So provability is within the content. But context is something different. And of course, the context of Spiritual reality is infinite. Hmm? Mm -hmm. Well, I know the 25th characteristic of truth is that it's mystical. It's termed mystical because it's beyond logical. Because it can't be intellectualized and mentalized, people go, oh, that's mystical. Mystical means in a different dimension, different paradigm. Spiritual truth emerges of its own when the obstructions to it are removed. It isn't something that's constructed, therefore it's not provable. When you remove the clouds from the sky, the sun shines forth. That's it. And removing the clouds does not cause the sun to shine, see? Mm -hmm. and the next characteristic is that it's ineffable. And that means it's not capable of linear definition. The psychologist William James wrote a very famous book, and he, he was the one that really introduced the term ineffable to describe religious and spiritual experiences. It's purely subjective, and what happens is the content diminishes and, and is replaced by pure context with no linearity. That is not describable. So the problem in trying to describe spiritual realities, if you try to language it, is that the language is based on different premises than is pure subjectivity. So if you feel that you love something, appreciate something, uh, etc. The best you can do is sort of a superficial explanation, but you can't really recreate the experience. You can't recreate it. It's ineffable, hmm? The 27th characteristic is that truth is simplistic. Yes, because it's nonlinear. See, linearity leads to complexity. Simplicity, the sky just is what it is, you see? The sunlight is what it is. Nature is what it is. And you see the perfection of all that exists 
And for a person who can't see the perfection, it's impossible to have them see it. At a certain level, you see the intrinsic, stunning beauty of all that exists. Of course, one function of the artist is to select something, some small part of life, and bring it to our attention, take it out of the context in which it occurred, represent it in a different context, and now you can see its uniqueness and its stunning beauty. But until the artist pointed it out to you, you were oblivious to it. Degas, you know, showing the ballet dancers resting their feet and massaging their ballet slippers, you know. That's just a back of the theater kind of a nothing event. But when he brought it forth, then you see the incredible design, and it's, of course, one of the most famous paintings in the world. Right, right. Well, the 28th characteristic is that truth is affirmative. Yes, it's beyond provability, therefore it's a beyond opinion, and it can only be confirmed by being it. You can only be that. So you can't confirm it or prove it. You can only know what it is to be a cat by being a cat. So you can write all the encyclopedias you want about catness. When you ask the cat, is that describing you? And they say, it's got nothing to do with who I am. You say to the cat, well, who are you? The cat says, me. <laughs> he asked the dog, who are you? You read him all about the canine world. And he says, got nothing to do with who I am. He say to the dog, well, who are you? The dog says, well, I'm me. Subjectively, we're all just identify with our own existence. Now, the next one's interesting is that truth is non-operative. Yes, this is a little difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Because it's non-linear, there's no this nor that. It's non-dualistic. Truth stands on its own. It doesn't do anything. It, you might say it's the stage, you know, like the sky doesn't do anything. It just is. So the ultimate reality, which is a subjective realization, is everything's meaning is what it is. The meaning of this table is completely explained by what it is. And any mentalization about it is unnecessary. Everything means what it is. What it is is what it means. (laughs) Yeah, when you say, who are you? And I say, you say, I'm me. That's because, you see, that is a complete and total statement. It needs no amplification, you know? Now, the 30th characteristic is invitational. Yes, because spiritual truth attracts because of the power of its integrity. See, coercion, call some various things like that, that use coercion, intimidation, and such, are using force. Spiritual truth comes from power, and it attracts. It has a magnetic attraction to people who are over 200. To people who are under 200, it may have the opposite effect. They may avoid it because it's a different domain in which they can't survive. Because if your survival is based on falsehood, the last thing you want to do is face ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. Characteristic 31 is that truth is non-predictive. Just on the physical level, we saw from the Heisenberg Principle that the state of the universe as it is now, which we can define by the Schrodinger equations, is changed by merely observing it. Then, because what happens is you collapse the wave function from potentiality to actuality, you now have a new reality. In fact, you have to use different mathematical formulas, the Dirac equations. So you've gone from potential into actuality. That transformation does not occur without the interjection of consciousness. 
Consequently, a thing could stand as a potentiality for thousands of years. Along comes somebody, looks at it differently, bang, it becomes an actuality. So the unmanifest then becomes the manifest as the consequence of creation. Therefore, predicting the future is impossible because you would have to know the mind of God because creation is the unfolding of potentiality depending on the local conditions and intention. You have no idea what intention is. Intention can change in one second from now. If the future was predictable, there would be no point to human existence because there would be no karmic benefit, no gain, no capacity to undo that which is negative. It would be confined to what is called predestination. You know? Predestination and um, predictions of the future miss the whole purpose of existence and human existence and jump the whole understanding of the evolution of consciousness. There would be no karmic merit nor demerit. There would be no salvation. There would be no heavens. There would be no stratifications of levels of consciousness. We would all just emerge perfectly in a perfect realm and therefore there would be no purpose to this life at all. <laughs> you know, it's an absurdity. It's an absurdity. Mm. Yeah, all of these predictions about the future are absurdities. And if you calibrate them, they're all way below 200. Beings from the future who don't even exist yet are going to enter your realm and tell you all this and that. You know, it's all poppycock. <laughs> it's straight Dutch uncle talk. Mm, it pulls people in, pulls them in. Now, the 32nd character's yeah. truth is that it's non-sentimental. Yes, a lot of people confuse spirituality with sentimental sentimentalism. Oh, if we're nice to them, they're going to be nice to us. I'll tell you, if you're nice to them, they're going to behead you slowly. <laughs> they're not going to be nice to you. Why? Because you're a non-believer. You're a heretic. As a heretic, you deserve to die. You see? All right, so sentimentalism, then, is a substitute for spiritual compassion. It gets confused. So it, be, it comes out as hand-wringing. So you end up with weepy, wimpish hand-wringing, which is peddled as spiritual. Not spiritual at all. It's sentimentalism. It's a self-indulgent, narcissistic, emotionalism. Mm -hmm. It's really childish, very childish emotionalism, you know. Can you give me an example of that? On sentimentalism? Uh-huh. Versus compassion, spiritual compassion. Well, compassion sees the essence of things. Sentimentality is hanging on to what it means to you. It's projecting your perception onto what's happening out there and then going into an emotional spasm about it. Huh? When you witness death, you witness death. There's no point to wring your hands, weep, cry. Huh? You should do that. You should be sufficiently non-attached that, of course, that's expected. Of course, it's going to come about. Of course, tomorrow is going to come. Everybody's wringing their hands. Oh, tomorrow is coming. Tomorrow has come. <laughs> it's self-indulgent. Sentimentality means emotionalizing, emotionalizing, because the ego loves the drama of, motion, of emotionalizing. Loves to be center stage, be the great tragedy, the hero. And so it's a way of being center stage in your inner make-believe theater of what your life is and what it means, etc. 
the spiritual reality it doesn't get any payoff from egoistic positions. Only the ego does. Doesn't get any payoff. Doesn't get attention. Doesn't love attention. So what's the difference mm -hmm. between you know tears at Edinburgh Castle yeah. at the tattoo? There could be tears. That's joy. The joy of appreciation of the stunning beauty and its significance, as it reflects outward the heart of mankind, irrespective of individuals. Yeah? Where, as opposed to your story, is uh, hang hanging over how Prince so and so got slain in the battle of so and so, and how his mother cried, and you know that's, it's melodrama, melodrama. Longs on the stage, it's dramatizing. Mm. It's making a theater out of life. Sentimentality is milking the thing for the ego payoff. Yeah, milking it. Mm. You know, being the victim, the martyr. Oh no 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 no, get ready, cry baby. Ours is a crybaby society. There was a <laughs> Time magazine cover that <laughs> called it the Crybaby Society, you know. And that's emotionalism, and of course, you can be quite profitable. Oh, how my feelings were hurt by that. You know, the name God was over the courthouse and ruined my day. You know, it doesn't come to the narcissistic ego that you should change yourself and not the world. The word God over the courthouse bothers you, that's your problem, see? But the narcissistic ego thinks you should change the world to conform with your narcissistic, sentimentalized view of how it should be, you know. So it's pretty petulant, infantile. You know, as I listen to yeah. you and spend time with you, I get a real sense of deep compassion, deep love for the world, but tough love, too. Like, let's cut the nonsense out and... Yes, because otherwise it wanders down the primrose path of agony and suffering. It's to prevent the pain of going in a direction you know is going to bring further pain. I know people who are still grieving the loss of a family member from 40, 50 years ago. Why? Because the payoff. It's such a big payoff. The drama, you go on and you're milking everybody for sympathy. So those are energy drainers. They're pulling, in, pulling energy out of everybody around them. So people at that level are pulling energy out of your solar plexus. And is that the same with relationships, with jobs? Right. We just kind of, do we start Anything to Anything under 200 is pulling your energy. Right. And that which is over 200 is adding to your energy. So we need to smarten up and start investigating. Is this feeding me or is this depleting They're, me? That's right. They're energy vampires. Sentimentalism is being an energy vampire. Mm -hmm. I had a person around my clinic. She got off the phone and she said, she wants to rip out my guts with her story. And I thought that was the best description of it. She's trying to rip out my guts. Compassion is a completely different attitude. Is compassion and empathy the same thing? There's sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Mm -hmm. You can have sympathy for that which suffers, you know? Mm -hmm. you, find you, give up, you give that up after a while. Instead, you have empathy for it. Yes, I know how you actually feel. Yeah? And then you end up with compassion in which you don't try to influence what the other person is going through. It's theirs to suffer out, learn from, and complete the karmic lesson in it. See? Mm -hmm. So you have compassion, but you don't necessarily take it on, nor do you have to. You don't to. take it on yourself, that's yeah. it. Because if you take on the responsibility, you've just joined the karmic obligation of it and the karmic consequences of it. You've joined the crowd, see? The crowds that used to hang out around the guillotine. You think, oh, it's only the person up there, the hangman, that's getting bad karma out of doing this. No, you are. As the participant, you are assuming karmic obligation, you're assuming the karmic inference 
of that which you are applauding. Though you're not just safely sitting out there watching the lynch mob hang somebody. By your sympathetic participation, you see in the world, large numbers of people are wiped out periodically, tsunamis and floods and volcanoes. They used to describe that to God. You know, God is angry or jealous. They cut out, used to cut out the hearts of virgins, you know, in Mayan religion, Aztec, mm -hmm. to assuage the angry gods, you see. So what, what you're actually seeing by group participation is the consequences of group karma. Group karma. So the, you join a crowd of a thousand that slaughters half of Europe. They didn't even take slaves in those days. They just killed you dead. Not only did they kill you dead, they chopped you up, chopped you up. Well, you have an obligation now. I tell you, but you got an obligation. Right. Yeah, see, you've participated in action. Now the groups come in on and off the planet, you know, like birds. And that same group then flocks back and are attracted because of the karmic energy field. See, the infinite field of consciousness is, like I said, a giant electromagnetic field. So within your little iron filing magnetic body is the code for that event. That little code pulls you into a certain maelstrom of energy and you get drowned along with the rest of the crowd. Huh? Now, this is where I need so, clarification. Nothing happens by accident, see, in the right. universal justice. All happens as a consequence of that which it is, that which it is. So every decision, then, influences that which you are. The consequences, then, that come about are then as a consequence of what you are. That's why God's justice is perfect and absolute. doesn't need man's help at all, see as a consequence of that which has become. You are where you are. Hmm? And you are where you are because of the energy of that field you're attracted to it. Right. You don't know why you were attracted to go there when you did, mm -hmm. because it's not within the conscious recall. But the infinite power of the universe is such, if I take an infinite magnetic field Let's say I take a magnetic field of infinite power. If you have even one hair of energy on you, you're going to get sucked right over. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The field is so powerful. So if you're cheering on the crowd as the guillotine falls, you have just put a hair on your karmic inheritance. Mm -hmm. And it's not by accident that you then re-experience the same thing, but in reverse, huh? Yeah. Well, what is it about, you know, the human nature? If there's a car crash, you're repulsed by it. No, you're not. The you're blood, attracted, you're dra attracted yeah, to it, it too. It backs up for miles. Exactly. So, so people what are attracted by is? the gruesome, the spectacular. Uh, that's the emotionalism, which, you know, below 200 has a powerful influence. And the more you're above 200, the less it has influence. I mean, car crashes are routine. Thousand day every weekend or something. So what? See, it sounds hard-hearted. It's because you've become non-attached. When you're attached, you sentimentalize. Oh God! So non-attached means it can be or not be. It's irrelevant. Detached means indifferent. 
you don't care if they're suffering there in the car or it's turned over. Not attached means you can stop because you don't have any fear of getting sucked in. Mm -hmm. You can call on your, you know, 911, make sure somebody's on their way and hang out and then leave, see, but you're not sucked into it. So emotionalism means getting sucked into it uh, energy-wise mm -hmm. and, of course, karmic-wise, you know. Now, the next characteristic, characteristic 33, is that truth is not authoritarian. Yes, uh, authoritarianism. See, one of the reasons for the emergence of secularism, the increasing popularity of secularism, especially in Europe, the Europe had its day with ecclesiastic authoritarianism, ecclesiastic totalitarianism. You know, everybody was slaughtered because they were Protestant or because they were not Protestant, you know what I'm saying? Our culture is sort of had it with authoritarianism. And one of the reasons, main reasons, is it confuses authority with authoritarianism. Two different things. Authoritarianism is the abuse of authority. Authority is legitimate position by virtue that you've earned it. Huh? Mm. Authoritarianism doesn't require authenticity. Anybody can adopt authoritarianism as a style. Mm -hmm. To be an authority, people usually even stop being authoritarian. I mean, I know what's going to cure a patient. What isn't? If they, I say, you know, if you take this like this about 90%, you're going to be better in a matter of days. Now, what they do about it is their problem. I'm not going to take on the karmic responsibility for their acquiescence or their disagreements. If they disagree, I will explain everything. But the, uh, it's allowing others to be the freedom of being who they are. See, because when you intervene, you're now pulling into your own karmic energy field, you might say, by participation. The minute you get involved in somebody else's affair, now you're taking on some karmic responsibility. So we let our children, we advise them? Of course we do. But we let them live their lives, our husbands, our wives. advise them, and um, because of their love for you, you hope that that will win in the end, see? On the other hand, you know, like you said, each one has lessons to learn, mm -hmm. and it may be more important that they learn the mistake of that pathway than pleasing you as a parent, you know? Now the 34th characteristic <laughs> is that truth is non-egoistic, and that's yeah. becoming very clear. For well, that, that's to counter the cultists, all the ceremonial pomp that uh, become accoutrements to uh, religion, you know, the pomp and the ceremony and the vestments and all the whole thing. So a true teacher, what is the proper attitude? Is one of respect. I think a teacher should be respected, and as a teacher, People say, what do you want from us? Just respect for the truth of what I'm saying and the energy and commitment to it to try and derive it and express it in the best way I know possible, that's all. But the only thing you want is the same as any other integrist endeavor would bring forth, you know? Mm -hmm. If you're a carpenter, you make a good piece of furniture and you say, this will last you a couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah, so it's good carpentry. So all you want is acknowledgement, acknowledgement, acknowledgement. So that's just a matter of respect, but adulation is a play, it's a really a play by the adulator. You see what I'm saying? The adulator is trying to play off that which it adulates, thinking it's going to have some gain. Plus, what they're adulating is the image and the magic associated with that image and all the oohs and the ahs and the pomp and the ceremony. 
had millions of followers, this avatar, millions of followers worldwide. You calibrate them and, you know, it would hardly even get through college, I don't think. But they know how to put on the theater. The 35th characteristic is that truth is educational. Yes, you try to provide the means by which any interested person can arrive at the truth on their own. You try to describe it, verbalize it, have it recorded, print it, CDs, DVDs, whatever they are. In other words, you try to make available the information. Mm -hmm. If you discover equals MC squared, you want the whole world to know what the mathematics was, what the physics involved, what the subparticle physics world is like, how it's designed, how it thinks. Because that's how the world grows, is by each person learning about that. That's the purpose of the encyclopedia. So learning and growing, you know, we contribute to that. So all a teacher does is contribute to the knowledge of the world try to provide inspiration, inspiration, and of course, the integrity of witnessing. So with the state itself, which replaces what was the mind, is not an occasion for grandiosity. On the other hand, neither can it be ignored. So you give testimony to the fact that when the clouds are removed, the sun shines forth. And also that when it hits you, you may not be able to function for quite a while time, so I prepare students. If you're an intense, integrous spiritual student, you know, you should be prepared in advance. You could hit a state of immobilization when you set hit 600 in bliss, frankly, you're going to sit on the rock. And you might just fall over there, because it's irrelevant. <laughs> it's irrelevant whether the body sits there or doesn't sit there. So the reason we discuss also the pitfalls, the seduction of the innocent, into non-integrous cults and things like that. Because I think a teacher should also forewarn people the downside. If you're gonna visit New York City, you know, hold your purse tightly to your body, see? Mm -hmm. And don't lend it to a stranger to borrow your lipstick, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Common sense. It's like being a parent, you know, you say, look, I don't want these kids getting drilled, you know? so you forewarn them, you know, mm -hmm. forewarn them. The traps that come up, because each level of consciousness has its trap on the downside, you see? Mm -hmm. Now, the 36th characteristic of truth is that it's self-supporting. Yes, it's neither mercenary nor materialistic. Self-supporting means it charges for whatever the expenses are. If you're going to put on a conference, conference is going to cost you plenty. And you divide it up and try to figure out what's going to make it work with a little surplus left over to pay the office staff until the next one. So it's self-propagating, so you don't have to solicit funds to do fundraising. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to work people. Mm -hmm. But I hear all the time how people have been worked, the good of the cause and, you know, this and that. And, and you know, they've really been worked and right. uh, exploited, really, you know, like by salesmen, salesmanship, salesmanship. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And, of course, spirituality, you can sell God and karmic benefit and all this. You know, you got all kinds of goods you can peddle, you know, to the innocent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Buy your way into heaven, huh? Now, the next characteristic of this truth is freestanding. Yes, its credibility does not depend on any external. Why is that? Because its authority comes from the reality of that which it is, which is purely subjective and experiential. So you don't have to quote authorities. For instance, in the books I'm completing now, I practically never quote an authority. You read many books on spirituality, and they're just endlessly quote some other author elsewhere in time and place. Well, why don't they speak for themselves? 
I mean, you can mention that, you know, Socrates agreed to the same thing, to give it a little historical context. But quoting Socrates is not to give it authenticity, but for clarification. So you see a trend going throughout history, human history, you see? Mm -hmm. The truth at that level was already available, you know, 3400 BC. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really changed. And that its applicability to current spiritual life is as timely as it was then. Mm -hmm. So you don't depend on making a statement by quoting an outside authority. So mm -hmm. Einstein doesn't say equals MC squared because Professor Schmuggelnlawarn said so in, in Klackenberger, you know, in 1922. <laughs> right. It's based on his own understanding and realization. It's self-standing. It stands on its own. stands mm -hmm. on its own. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to make this work stand on its own mm -hmm. and reaffirmable by anybody who wishes to track it. Well, thank yeah. you. Now, the, the final characteristic, yeah. the 38th, is that truth is natural. Yes, because of that which you have become, the kundalini energy flows automatically based on the level of consciousness through the appropriate chakra system, the acupuncture system, and it alters the brain physiology as a consequence of that which it is. We spoke of the kundalini energy. We also spoke from 200 and up. Brain physiology shifts in the left brain to the right brain, and the whole sequence of processing is completely different. This is natural. It's a consequence of that which you have become. And if you turn your life into devotion to become that, and you be that, as a matter of being that, then the energy automatically, when you can see the beauty and divinity of all that exists, and the sacredness of all of life, etc., and you see the divinity that shines forth through all of creation. To try to imitate it. So altered, you see a lot of these strange energy manipulation systems. I saw one on television the other night, it's supposed to be levitation or something like this, see? I mean, it was ridiculous. And if you calibrate it, it's got nothing to do with levitation. Levitation, you know, having gone through the cities myself, I can tell you, it has nothing to do with what you do whatsoever. It's got nothing to do with how you breathe, picturing lights flowing around you, reciting peculiar things, breathing through one nostril or the other. The cities at a certain level flow up your back like an exquisite energy. This energy spontaneously in and of that which it is flows into the world. And all the so-called paranormal phenomena happen automatically as a consequence of their own. It's got nothing to do with you personally. To try and force these things unnaturally can be catastrophic. And you read about Kundalini psychosis, you read about the students who the energy went up one side and not the other, and they were lopsided and staggered over and were sick for years, etc. This is trying to force the Kundalini energy. The spiritual energy is divine energy. What you're trying to do is force God's hand. I'll just breathe this energy up into this chakra and then I'll be such and such. Why don't you just be such and such and then the energy will flow up to that chakra. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like trying to drive the horse with the buggy. Mm -hmm. No, that which you become automatically pulls to itself that which is concordant with that which it is. To try and force it unnaturally, I don't advise. Now you also talk as far as truth being natural that it's not invoking of entities or others. Yes, otherness. You can go the whole gamut of the evolution of consciousness and along the way there are no others. 
No angels speak to you. No archangels, no visions, no voices coming out of trees, no whisperings from the grass, no monkeys who suddenly begin to talk. So is there something there's wrong no, with invoking? There's no master on the other side. Right. There's no other entity. Even at the very highest, where you have to surrender your life itself, there's no other there. When you have to make the most major decision possible to make in the evolution of consciousness, there is no other to guide you, no other. No guardian angel, no Baba Baba, there's nobody there. You're absolutely all by oneself. The only thing that accompanies you is a frequency and an energy in the aura. That's the grace of the Guru, the traditional grace of the Master. So, the high spiritual teaching shines forth as a frequency vibration, a very high frequency vibration in your aura. So that's the silent transmission, but it's not a personage. So when you get to the great door where you need, you know, if any, there was ever going to be a time you need somebody with there, there's nothing there. However, there is the frequency and the energy of the knowingness which comes forth not from elsewhere, but from within oneself is a knowingness, because all spiritual evolution is a revelation. All fear is an illusion. Walk through it. <laughs> and without that knowingness, now that knowingness, because you're giving your life itself, better come with a very high frequency vibration. The power of it has to be greater than the power of the ego. Mm. Ego has been around a long, long time, millennia, mm -hmm. long before mankind was even thought of. The ego ruled in the energy of that energy. There better be a knowingness on the most profound level, most profound level, to turn over your life to the unknown and walk through a gate. Huh? So there's no reliance on externals. See, you can't turn your life over to an unseen entity on the other side, either calibrated or not calibrated. Most of them on the other side are into power over you because why would they be hanging out instead of going on to celestial realms? You don't suddenly hear a voice saying, I'm Master Hookah. I'm 35,000 years old, follow me. No, it doesn't happen that way because it is tricky.